This is Sid and Friends in the Morning. Oh, no, I get by with a little help from my friends. Let's kick off the my lighting up. Boy. From my friends. The star of the show. Boy. Boy. I spoke to a radio broadcaster famous here in New York, WABC, Sid Rosenberg. Boy. This Boy. is Sid and Friends in the Morning. No, I get by with a little help. Seventy seven WABC. Not on Southwest, that's for sure. You ain't flying nowhere on Southwest. It's yours truly, Curtis Lee. I'll be joined by John Katz-Matidis uh, very soon as we take it to the 10 o'clock hour because the man who just called me, was that him calling me a goy, uh, Justin Ellick? Yeah, goy. Was that oy? I don't know. Very confusing. Anyway, Sid Rosenberg uh, decided to take this week off, and I think he regrets it. Because all the pipes in his uh, new house out there in the Irish Riviera popped uh, because of the freeze. Frozen pipes, uh, the Gavon didn't run water uh, on the faucets, either in the uh, bathtub or the sink. He didn't, uh, he didn't actually counsel with all the um, Irish who've grown up in the Rockaways who could have told him, hey, it's what you got to do. <laughs> this is what happens out in the Rockaways. So... Sid and family uh, are trying to put their household back together again. He'll be with us to start next week. But it's our job to take you to places where you're not going to hear on any other news talk radio stations uh, because they're either playing best of, worst of, you know, they're on remote, they're still at home, they're starting to mask up, they're starting to get all frightened. Oh, my God, it's what RSV, it's flu, it's... COVID-19, no, no, none of that here. It's live and local here at WABC. Even with some of our personnel away, we've extended our hours, but uh, you're going to get fresh slices. You know, you don't want any bum slices in the pie. You say, hey, I want a fresh slice coming out of that pizzeria that is in the neighborhood of your choice. Anyway, let's uh, get down to it as... uh, (laughs) It's incredible. It's probably going to consume most of our talk time this morning until 10 with John Katzmatidis. Because originally, I will never forget it was the Lunar New Year. Make sure you follow me on this, Diego, or I will want to grab your larynx through this bulletproof glass and squeeze the life out of you. It was in January of 2020. I had just finished an appearance at the World Martial Arts Expo at the Tropicana Hotel in Atlantic City, and it was the start of the Asian Lunar New Year. And I could see uh, Chinese who are already swarming into uh, Atlantic City. Most of them were coming in from Pennsylvania, from uh, Philadelphia, from Easton, from Allentown. And they were just, like, coming in because they had all kinds of activities. And naturally, the Asians, the uh, Chinese love to gamble. Uh, when they start building these new all-purpose casinos in New York City already, one of those who said, I'll, I'll host them right here next to City Field in Flushing because I got a community surrounding me 
that travels to all different parts to gamble. Down to Atlantic City, they go to Bethlehem, to the old U.S. Steel plant. They travel up to Wilkes-Barre. They go up to the uh, what used to be the Mount Airy Lodge where there's gambling. Now, there's gambling everywhere. And it's almost a guarantee that you're going to find Chinese and Asian Americans there. They work hard all day, 12 hours, sometimes more. Then they pound the Greyhound and they find a casino near them. Most times it's legal, but sometimes it's right in the basement of a lot of the places, the retail establishments where they have the illegal gambling going on. But I digress. The reason I am discussing this is I myself was getting ready to get on the Greyhound at the uh, Greyhound station in Atlantic City. Let me tell you something. That is on the down low. You do not want to be stuck at the Greyhound station with uh, not a nickel, dime, or penny to your name as a lot of degenerate gamblers who get washed out. And then the only way home is the Greyhound. But I was on the Greyhound coming back to New York City. I had to do a program here at WABC. And it was John Katsimatidis, uh, newsmaking, as he did every Sunday morning and continues to do now that he does it uh, throughout the nation on the 50,000 powerful watts of sound of WABC. It's still dark out. We're heard in 38 states, parts of Canada, a sliver of Europe, and we're... Well, right between the Bahamas and Bermuda, right on down to Davy Jones's locker. This was the interview that set us off in the direction of the lockdown and pandemic of March of 2020, when Dr. Fauci told John Katsimatidis and his national audience, "Not a worry, don't worry, be happy." It's not going to affect us, this coronavirus. What do you tell the American people uh, about what's going on? Should they be scared? Uh, I don't think so. The American people should not be worried or frightened by this. It's a very, very low risk to the United States. It isn't something that the American public needs to worry about or be frightened about because we have ways of preparing, of screening, of people coming in, and we have ways of responding like we did with this one case in Seattle, Washington, who had traveled to China and brought back the infection. No, he's supposed to be the expert, right? No problem. We have ways of screening people coming into our country, especially from mainland China, what I call red China. And the guy was full of bull feathers, like he's been almost since he got on board in the Reagan administration and botched up uh, the handling of HIV AIDS that was spreading within the gay community. I don't know if the guy's ever gotten anything right. Uh, Diego, I want you to play it one more time. Because remember, we only had one case at that point of coronavirus. That's what it was called. Most people were assuming what? Uh, the, the beer that they make in Mexico, Corona. Somehow, if you drank that uh, without the salt, without the lime, maybe you got a virus. They couldn't quite figure it out. It was so new. But we were watching these uh, stories coming out of Red China where people were being uh, forced to stay in their domiciles, their homes, their places of business. In fact, you had the cops on the outside throwing them back in their house and putting up the plywood putting in the spikes, making sure they couldn't even get outside. And you say, oh, my God, what the hell is happening there? But, hey, everyone be happy. Don't worry about it. In January of 2020, 
Dr. Fauci, the so-called medical expert in the country, was telling our own John Katsimatidis, not a chance that it comes here because of our screening right at the port of entries and the port of departures for a lot of those flights that are coming in from Red China into their United States destinations. What do you tell the American people uh, about what's going on? Should they be scared? Uh, I don't think so. The American people should not be worried or frightened by this. It's a very, very low risk to the United States. It isn't something that the American public needs to worry about or be frightened about because we have ways of preparing, of screening, of people coming in, and we have ways of responding like we did with this one case in Seattle, Washington, who had traveled to China and brought back the infection. No problem. Just one case, right? Isolated outside of Seattle. We have ways of preparing. We have ways of screening people coming in. And then all of a sudden, within just a matter of weeks, just a matter of weeks, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, imposed a travel ban. Flights going in and out of mainland China, Red China, because that was the epicenter of the coronavirus. We were talking a little bit about Wuhan. You know, did it come from bats, rats, mice, whatever? We assume that it was one of these marketplaces. It were the first hints that maybe this was a biological laboratory uh, that had leakage of some type. And there was a complete shutdown on that. We had reached out to the Red Chinese, and they were not cooperating. They were not giving any information. And so Donald Trump on January 31st declared travel to be level four and imposed a travel ban on Red China, who provided most of our tourists. Most of our tourists were coming from Red China. They were not coming from Europe. They were not coming from South America. They were not even coming in from other states in the United States, especially here. You would see I would remember seeing people, large delegations from Red China, and they would assemble behind a man or a woman who would have a little uh, little flag in the air, not the Chinese communist flag, but a little flag, and they'd all be walking around, coughing and spitting. Uh, Red Chinese love to just spit in the street. and Oh, they're from Red China, you know, right away. <laughs> and they filled up the hotels, and they'd spend a whole weekend, spend their yen. So we love the Red Chinese. They were the number one tourists in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Miami. Man, they wanted to see America. Some of them wanted to stay in America. But the point was is that we were making money on them, and, boy, they were spending their money here. And then all of a sudden, complete crackdown. And remember what immediately happened, the blowback. Uh, At the time, Comrade Bill de Blasio, the part-time mayor, the dope from Park Slope, the mayor of the city, who was always a dollar late, uh, a dollar short and a day late, always usually getting to work at about 12 noon, taking a nap uh, downstairs in uh, City Hall, and then eventually working till about 8, if you call that work, and then he'd be... uh, Heading back to Gracie Mansion, sitting on the back porch with uh, his wife, Charlene, smoking that Maui Wowie and Hindu Kush. And who knows, maybe he'll be the first online today down there NYU. Believe it or not, where John Katsimatidis went for a brief period of time, as did our own Frank Morano. They became violets. They would never. Now, they were selling marijuana back then in Washington Square Park to Rastafari with their Jiffy Pop hats, nickel and dime bags. But now, now it's like... 
two floors of what will be legal pot. The doors open today in the shadow of NYU at 420. You don't get excited, Diego, anytime anybody says April 20th. I noticed Noam Layden was getting very excited out there, our news director, when he was giving that story. By the way, uh, Noam Layden was getting very excited with the traffic lady talking about the time that they went into Times Square for the dropping of the ball. New Yorkers don't do that. Oh, that's right. Noam Layden is not a New Yorker. He's from New Jersey. I have no idea where the traffic lady is, uh, who is uh, replacing Joe Nolan, uh, who, by the way, is another Jersey boy. Real New Yorkers, you know where they go January 1st? They don't go to the dropping of the ball in Times Square. That's for all the tourists. You know, they plan their entire year around from Montreal to uh, uh, to uh, Montego Bay. Oh, they want to come in to watch the ball drop. Real New Yorkers go down to the boardwalk in Coney Island and strip down to their BVDs, their Fruit of the Loom, their skivvies, and they dive into the drink as part of the annual polar bear process where you just run into the water on January 1st. At times, there have been thousands. That's what real New Yorkers do. But everybody wanting to enjoy New York, they go to Times Square for the dropping of the ball. And whether you have Ryan Seacrest, who uh, does the old corn porn Dick Clark American Bandstand routine for ABC TV, you know, a man who never says anything, Ryan Seacrest, or you go to what has been the most overhyped, overpromoted Anderson Cooper with the guy Cohen as they get drunk on TV. Now, now rules and regulations are nobody else at CNN can get drunk. Only Anderson Cooper and Cohen. Everybody else has to be dry. In fact, it has to take them three days to get enough moisture in their mouth to spit. Uh, they're like prohibitionists. But Cohen up there and Anderson, they can drink, get drunk. Fall off the tower, it doesn't matter. It makes for what they call great TV. <laughs> but I digress. Let's get back on track. To January 31st, 2020, and the travel ban to Red China. De Blasio claimed that Donald Trump was xenophobic, anti-Chinese. Uh, Nancy Pelosi weighed in. So did Joe Biden. Oh, he should never have closed travel to Red China. It turns out that it would have helped if he had locked down against travel with Red China earlier. Nobody knew. Uh, but they didn't want him to lock down travel to Red China to and from at all. In fact, the only ones who were permitted to travel were U.S. citizens or those who had green cards back and forth. Other than that, you were kept out. And remember, he was... It was Dr. Fauci talking about there were ways of preparing, ways of screening. There were not. And then all of a sudden, it's like deja vu. You heard Noam Laden talk about half the passengers on two flights going from Red China. I think it was Shanghai to Milan. All the passengers were tested. Half of them were COVID positive. Half of the passengers on both airlines coming in from Red China to Milan we're COVID positive. So the United States, Joe Biden, who has decided once again, I got to get out of here. I got to get that. That should be the, his mantra. That should be his nickname. I got to get out of here, Joe Biden. Yeah, what week is it? Hey, let me go either to the basement of my Delaware Shore home. Let me go to my friend, the billionaire friend I have, and then tuck it up in Rhode Island. Every other week, him and the, and the wife are heading off. Now they're in St. Croix, Virgin Island. Apparently, Eric Adams, swagger man with no plan, our mayor, 
or as I call him now, out-of-town Adams paved the way because he's the Biden of Brooklyn. And he uh, headed to the Virgin Islands first. I guess he was part of the advance team. So there in St. Croix, Virgin Island, and they have imposed upon the United States the fact that on January 5th, as long as people are pre-tested and they are negative before they board their flights in Shanghai or Beijing or wherever, They can come to the United States. That is crazy. You see how the virus is spreading in Red China? Supposedly 250 million people now have COVID because they never submitted to the vaccination method that Trump had set into place. They decided into the quarantine method, and now all of a sudden, President Xi or Emperor Xi for life has decided, hey, no more quarantines. Uh, Go ahead. Just fly all over the world. 250 million red Chinese, that is one-sixth of their population, is now infected with COVID. Want to bet that some of them are going to want to fly away? Let me hear that little fly away to the U.S. of A, to Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Houston, Miami, Washington, D.C., Boston, Philly, and right here. In the Big Apple, the Big NYC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Sit in friends in the morning. 77 WABC. And I can do it if I just believe it. There's nothing to it. I believe I can fly. Yeah, tell that to the Southwest passengers who will be stranded for about a week. Oh, by the way, this is the pedophile on a pedestal, R. Kelly. Found guilty of all pedophilia charges in New York, and now he's in the federal lockup in Chicago. He's facing similar charges. And uh, while he was here in Sunset Park in the Brooklyn federal lockup, he uh, was cellmates with Frank James. No, 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 not, not part of the Jesse James and his gang. Frank James, don't you remember April 12th? He was uh, there in the subway 20, uh, what was it, uh, 2022. Got on that end train, came in uh, after staying in a Airbnb in Philadelphia, rented a van, you know, for like $19.99, came uh, to the Verrazano Bridge, then uh, over into uh, Brooklyn, got off, got on the train, paid his fare, by the way, paid his fare. Like, most people are not paying their subway fare or bus fare now. <laughs> this crazy guy paid his fare, and he had on the garb of an MTA worker. Remember, he had the white construction helmet, he had on the orange vest, and he sat there. And when he reached 36th Street, um, he set off some smoke bombs, and then he just started shooting at anybody and everybody. Shot 10, everybody fled. And he went on a walking tour of New York City for the next 24 hours before he was collared. Well, he has just pled guilty to all charges in federal court. He'll be locked up triple life without parole. But it's interesting that uh, they became very dear friends. R. Kelly, the pedophile on a pedestal. Uh, they are now pen pals as he awaits his uh, sentencing to the, probably the Atlantic Correctional Facility. Or maybe Marianne in Illinois. Uh, he's going to be doing hard time, uh, Frank James. And I'm assuming R. Kelly will. They'll, they'll remain pen pals. But the interesting thing, 
when they were at the Brooklyn uh, Federal House of Detention in Sunset Park. They would entertain the other inmates. Hold on, I can't call them inmates any longer, according to Kathy Crimewave Holcomb, who was missing in action in Buffalo until Sunday. She passed legislation that says we must call them incarcerated persons. We cannot call them inmates any longer. Oh, my God. But while they were uh, both housed in the Brooklyn Federal House of Detention, they would sing show tunes under a carousel and entertain the other inmates. And my question is, who was whose Maytag? Was R. Kelly the Maytag for Frank James, or was he the Maytag for R. Kelly? Now, the whole reason I bring all of this up is that Frank James was seen on video paying his fare, going over to the Metro card machine, trying to figure it out, right? And then all of a sudden, uh, using Pierce uh, a debit card, and he bought himself a Metro card to get on so he could shoot people in the morning during rush hour. We have a problem in New York City now that 20% of everybody who rides the subways does not pay. They basically, to them, it's the Irish sweepstakes. They go under the turnstile, over the turnstile, bust through the emergency gate, one leads, and then everybody else just follows. They herd through. They're black, they're white, they're old, they're middle-aged, they're young. It's learned behavior. You figure I'm a working-class stiff, right? I'm paying my fare every day, and I'm watching people just walk through. There is no supervision whatsoever. There is no... uh, no, no, uh, snatching you up as you come through like it used to be. They'd have undercover police officers in a nearby closet eyeballing you. The, ma- the moment you came over or under or through the emergency gate, uh, you got locked up. they check your background. How many times they came up with people who had fled warrants, who were wanted for serious crimes, or believe it or not, were carrying guns at that time, and then they'd be locked up and thrown away. Now... All of our district attorneys in the five boroughs of the city of New York, they will not prosecute fair evasion, fair evaders. So it's sort of like the MTA, the money-taking agency, which is in dire fiscal straits, is saying, well, what are we going to do to collect the fare? 30% of the people who get on the city buses don't pay the fare, whether it's Highland Boulevard, where most of the buses run up and down in Staten Island or up in the Bronx. 30% of the people are refusing to pay the fare. 20% on subways. This is a a system, the mass transit system, that is supported by fares. There's no big daddy who's going to come out of Washington. No more stimulus money. They're scratching their bellies wondering what they're going to do. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You buy some time. You put together a blue ribbon panel to study the situation. Now, it just so happens that everyone who is on that blue ribbon panel down at J Street Borough Hall, which is MTA money-taking agency headquarters, never rides the trains, never rides the subways. But they're going to tell everybody what should be done. Lock them up. That's simple. They don't pay their fare, they get busted. What do you need a blue ribbon committee for? So now they haven't published their report yet, and they said, well, maybe we'll get the report out at some point in February or March. Guess what? The system can't wait. There needs to be enforcement. If you don't control who's coming into the subways at the turnstiles, you lose control of the subways. No matter how many cops you put in the subways. You must control entry and exit at the ports of entry and exit at each and every one of the 442 subway stations where supposedly cameras are in place. 
so that we can sort of get you on photo recognition technology. A, a lot of those cameras are not working. B, they won't let the police most times use photo recognition technology that we've already invested millions and millions of dollars into this system. Now think about it. If you're black or Hispanic, you've always stated that how many black and Hispanic, especially men, have been jammed up for crimes they never committed because of false identification. It depended on somebody maybe picking somebody out of a lineup, somebody who had been bludgeoned, shot, somebody who had been beaten in the back of their head, who could barely focus uh, their eyesight, but were being expected to maybe pick a suspect out of a lineup or actually pick them out by photo recognition. And a lot of times, they picked the wrong person. The wrong person got jammed up. The wrong, wrong person went away. Photo recognition technology. 99% of the time nails the person. Millions and millions of photos are in that system. And most times, they refuse to use that system here. Now, you go to a casino like Frank Morano has gone to the Borgata again to shoot craps. If you get caught counting cards, let's say you're playing five-card draw poker. Let's say you're playing blackjack. And they assume that you were counting the cards, which to me should be legal, right? Right. I mean, it's it's not technology. You're counting the cards. The house is always going to beat you most times. But now at least you have a little edge. If they think you're counting cards, you're banned. Not only from the Borgata, you're banned in perpetuity from all casinos, including those dives in Reno, to photo recognition technology. Because when you're coming in, each and every one of the casinos, they share the imagery. And it says immediately when they get your picture, beep, 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 ban, ban. And then some guys come up to you who look like they took steroids that morning in their Cheerios. And they say, hey, sir, come with me. And you go in the back room. No, it's not like a scene out of casino, you know, where you got Robert De Niro and Pesci ready to take a baseball bat to you. They say, you know, uh, you were counting cards. What are you talking about? Oh, you know, down in Mississippi, you know, uh, in those uh, casinos, hey, you got caught counting cards. You're banned from all casinos. In fact, you go to Macau in China, right? They'll take you. Uh, Macau in China, right? The Steve Wynn's Casino. They'll ban you there, too. Now, imagine the technology works, and we won't even use it. Police departments around there, oh, it's considered prejudicial, a violation of people's rights. No, sorry. <laughs> they use it in the casinos. We should be using it in the streets and the subways and the parks. Do you know our parks are not wired up with cameras? Did you see that doctor who was walking through Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem the other morning at 2, two o'clock in the morning? Let me just say, he wasn't taking a stroll in the park. That's on 124th Street in the heart of Harlem. He was going there for male sex. That's why you go there. That's the stroll. And the guy who had been stabbing people all over the city, killed the guy in the Lower East Side, went into that gin mill on 106th Street where he knew everybody, started stabbing them up, worked his way with his girlfriend to Marcus Garvey Park. He finds this doctor, 60-year-old guy, pediatrician, and he stabbed him like 30 times and then left him to bleed out. No cameras. You say, wait, wait, that's not a very large park. Why are there no cameras in the parks of New York City? Well, that was a rule imposed by Bill de Blasio, the part-time mayor, the dope from Park Slope, who single-handedly destroyed the city that we love. We have the technology, and we're not going to use it. Well, you know, there are certain situations that go on in some of our parks, like 
Central Park, the Rambles, parts of Prospect Park, Marcus Garvey, where it is a uh, stroll for gay men. And we don't want to violate their privacy, their privacy. Are you out of your minds? <laughs> you know how many gay guys go on a stroll and all of a sudden they get robbed, knocked upside their head, beaten, stabbed, abused, and you don't want cameras in the parks? Well, how about enforcing curfew, right? Do you know that every city park has a curfew? You have no idea that, Diego, because you see people going in and out of parks like they own the park. No cameras, no imposition of curfew. And that's why there's a lot of crimes being committed in uh, parks because it's out of sight, out of mind. As a criminal, you know you can mug somebody in a city park and it'll never be on video. You know that you can go in there and make illegal drug transactions because it'll never be on video. You know you can go in there and take advantage of culpable persons who may be there looking for love and sex in all the wrong places. And there'll be no ramifications. Time to tighten it up. Anyway, uh, when we come back, we got to talk about George Santos. A man uh, who I don't even believe is named George Santos, to be honest with you. Every day, ever since uh, our own John Cancimatidis had the first exclusive interview with Congressman George Santos and his 5 o'clock roundtable discussion uh, Monday on Friday, the guy can't stop talking. He's like a yenta. He talks to everything. He talks to telephone poles. Put a microphone in his face. You could be a nobody journalist from nowhere. He'll talk to you. He's talking and giving himself up a mile a minute and continuing to perpetuate this image that although not a Jew, he finally is acknowledged he was birthed a Roman Catholic, if we can believe him. But he has created a new term. He is Jew-ish. I asked Anthony Weiner, the Zionist, what the hell is that? I don't know. I asked Rabbi Joe Potashnik, our rabbi here at WABC, I said, did you ever hear of Jew-ish? I bet you on Saturdays, in order to live up to that, what he does, Diego, is he gets the schmear on the bagel, right, at the bagel bender joint. He walks past the shul or the synagogue, but he doesn't go inside. That's what makes him jew Hyphen ish. Sit in friends in the morning. 77 WABC. I'm a big seller. You know it. We can't wait to bet. Hell off this drink. This afternoon at 420. The doors will open up to New York State's first state licensed pot shop in the shadow of NYU. Think of it, we have quite a few alumni here from NYU as our own owner-operator, great talk show host in his own right, John Katsimatidis. He went to NYU, I think, uh, no, he didn't graduate, right? So he did not get his violet insignia. But I know his children went to NYU. And then, of course, there's Frank Morano. You have to wonder, his parents worked two jobs just to make ends meet, to pay, what, $55,000 a year, no frill, with all the amenities, right? And he's a violet. He graduated NYU. But just think, nowadays it costs even more. Ladies and gentlemen out there, some of you have been fooled into sending your children to NYU. Just think, if they had taken uh, up the study of horticulture or hydroponics, they would have a ready-made job. All they got to do is walk over to the new pot shop, 
and they're hired because they're experts in separating seeds and stems, right? Not in horticulture class or hydroponics class, but in the dorms, which oftentimes look like atriums with all the pot plants that are being grown right in the NYU dorms that are all throughout downtown Manhattan from 14th Street South. You walk in there, and it's like purple haze. The students, they're like puff, puff, pass. Years ago, you would have to go into nearby Washington Square Park, and you had the Jamaican guys with their jiffy pop hats, you know, Rastafari. They had the Bob Marley shirts on, you know, and they'd say, hey, come here. I'm going to sell you some some herb. You know, this is spiritual. This is religious for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give me my nickel and dime bags and make sure it's the good sense, huh? I mean, for years, that used to be the way you copped your pot. No more. You can do it legally. But let me tell you what's going to happen. Because it is on the fringe of the Lower East Side. And the Lower East Side, going down to Tompkins Square Park, has been synonymous with pot sales for decades. St. Mark's Place, Avenue A, going over to 2nd Avenue. Oh, by the old Fillmore East. Let me tell you something. The uh, underworld black market dealers are going to be posting up in proximity to the opening of this first ever legally licensed pot shop anywhere in New York State. And believe it or not, even though Buffalo is snowed in Diego, right, five foot of snow, they're still bringing bodies out. People are still looting there. People are still dealing marijuana there. Yep, you know, gotta gotta blaze up. Even if it's a blizzard, got to blaze up. So the black market will continue to operate. And let me explain how it may not be as good as the elected officials explained to us. In March of 2021, just one year after the uh, lockdown of March of 2020, when the bill was signed into law that we could open up legal pot shops. Jersey's already done it. Uh, they have done it very proficiently. Uh, they're taxing it too much, which has created a burgeoning black market, but they seem to have a pretty good lock on it. Here in New York City, again, a dollar short, day late, and we're claiming that the only one who can have the license is if you got busted before. So this goes back to The Godfather. Remember that scene when Hyman Roth is telling Michael Corleone, you know, me and your father, we used to bootleg liquor, you know, from Canada into the United States. And then all of a sudden, we're able to do it legally. So I guess if you were bringing in bales of marijuana, like if any of you ever saw that movie with Johnny Depp Blow, you know, he first started bringing in bales of marijuana, but he said, hey, it's a little too rigorous here. Bales of marijuana, too easy uh, to get uh, entrapped. How about just bringing cocaine, right? Again, a lot better bang for the toot. And you know the rest of that story there, because that's what this is going to lead to. Eventually, you're going to see they're going to sell drugs that are more potent. Obviously, uh, it's what the customer wants. And the decision is going to be made in state legislators that why allow the black market to sell it and keep all the profits and not pay any taxes. Well, that was the whole idea in legalizing marijuana. But I got to tell you, this is this is how the deal goes down. People who have been buying marijuana for years have dealers that they have invested trust in. These are dealers who have allowed them, Diego, to sample the product. 
So if they get any new strains or any new buds, because it's it's gotten it's no more even a four H club matter. I mean, it's gotten really technologically and agriculturally specific to the grade, the bud, uh, the strain you want. They let you sample the product. They give out free samples. They say, "Hey, Diego, come in." You get free samples from me. What do you get in that New York State license shop? You don't get to sample the product. Number two, if you're down on your luck, it's like Wimpy, remember, who said, if I could have a hamburger today, Tuesday, I'll gladly pay you on Thursday. I give you credit, and I'm not going to bend your leg and stuff it in your pocket if you can't pay right away. No, this is not like organized crime. I want to keep you as a customer. And then lastly, no taxes. So I can charge a much lower rate. So you get to sample the product. I can charge you less. And I can give you credit. Like a bookie gives you when you're betting illegally as opposed to all the legal betting that goes on now. So I know that a lot of people think this is going to be a panacea. But watch today. Within, I would say, a two-square block proximity of NYU where the opening of this new pot shop takes place at 420. Huh, 420. You will see buzzards and vultures selling nickel and dime bags, accessories, and also giving out little flyers of where you can go to get not only better strains, get more quality and quantity, but how you can get home delivery. The whole guise of the Pope of Greenwich Village was based on the fact that you had this crazy-looking, tall Jewish guy who happened to be gay sitting right in the middle of Tompkins Square Park on Avenue A off of St. Mark's Place who had people coming and going. He would take your orders, and then he would tell this guy on a bicycle, this is where you deliver. Long before there was grub up. They were doing this back in the 70s. Sorry, New York State. You should have done it the Jersey way because the Jersey way, like with no cash bail, is the better way. This is Sid and Friends in the Morning. 77 WABC. Leave my residence thinking how I could I get some dead presidents. I need money. I used to be a stick-up kid, so I think of all the devious things I did. I used to roll up. This is a hole up. Ain't nothing funny. Stop smiling. Boy, you never hear songs like this. With uh, Sid Rosenberg, he'll be back, I believe, on Monday. Told us, John and I, as we uh, sat in for him yesterday, that um, what he thought would be a great vacation turned out not to be because the pipes burst in his brand-new house that he bought out in the Rockaways because he didn't leave the faucets running. Then again, what would he do? He came from the Upper West Side. He should have depended on the Irish out there in the Irish Riviera. But um, he'll be back on Monday to be able to tell you all that, Michigash. What I want to tell you is what I know best. Been uh, doing this now 44 years on February 13th in 1979, where I started the Guardian Angels in the Bronx. We're now in 13 countries and 130 cities. So if there's one thing I know, it's the mind of the street thugs and how to put them out of business. So our mayor, Eric Adams, swagger man with no plan, who's earned a new moniker, uh, out-of-town Adams. I'm not going to tell you where I was. It's none of your B.I.B. business. 
uh, was taking a victory lap. He gave himself a report card, end of the year report card, B+. That was the same grade he gave Bill de Blasio in my last debate with him at Channel 7. It's like, B+. So you know better than Bill de Blasio? Well, you're not. Because he took a victory lap uh, just a few days ago saying, oh, look, shootings are down, murders are down. Well, they are. But all other crime categories are skyrocketing. But this this is the big problem that Eric Adams has and uh, Sewell, the police commissioner, and the New York City Police Department that is depleted. Its ranks are depleted. They're not uh, basically able to keep up with enough recruits to replace all the normal retirement, early retirement, and all the outside agencies, police departments that are recruiting the NYPD after they get seasoned after about three years of service. They're actually standing outside of precincts ready to recruit them up, give them a signing bonus. They will transport them to the city that's hiring them. They give them a housing bonus for a year and pay them more than they're getting paid in the first five and a half years of the NYPD, where many of them can't afford to have their own apartment or their own house, and they're still living at home with mommy and daddy in the basement. It's bad. Uh, Recently at the Jacob Javits Convention Center, there was 10,000 police officers uh, who took the test to become sergeant. 10,000, obviously, most of them will now become sergeants. But as soon as they left Jacob Javits Convention Center... There were about 48 recruiters from various police departments throughout the United States who were there to meet them, greet them, and offer them offer them a deal that many of them could not walk away from because especially if they had families and kids. Norfolk, Virginia, down throughout Florida, out in Arizona. They were there from Tempe. They were there from Falstaff. They were there from all over the country because they know it costs us $100,000 to recruit, vet, train, and graduate a police officer out of the NYPD Academy at College Point. They wait until they're about three years. They get some seasoning, and then they just swoop in, and they offer them a deal that they can't say no to because especially if they're in dire fiscal straits, which many of them are in the first five years of service to the NYPD. So that just gives you an idea. We can't keep at the same level of the retirements, early retirements, and the people who are just leaving because they have better job opportunities. So give an example. Monday night, make that Monday morning, in the Bronx, off Southern Boulevard in East Tremont, that's a hot area, day or night, a guy named Carlos Gonzalez goes into a bodega and gets into a beef. Uh, The thugs pull out guns and shoot him right between the teeth. He's dead on arrival. Dead on arrival. So the very next day, Tuesday, they have a vigil. Actually, last night, made that 6.30 p.m. Wednesday night at that same location in honor of Carlos Gonzalez. It's almost like everybody's flying the white flags, right? Peace. We're just having a vigil here if it's competing gangs. And as soon as everyone congregated to pay respects to Carlos Gonzalez, who was dead on arrival, another guy runs up pulls out a 9 millimeter, fully loaded, starts firing on the crowd, shoots a man dead right on the spot, uh, injures three others who were taken in nearby St. Barnabas Hospital, and then that guy disappears into the wind. So you have one murder in the morning at a bodega on Southern Boulevard in East Tremont, unsolved, still haven't been able to nab the suspect. 
And then two days later, a vigil with the family and others, and a guy comes up and just starts indiscriminately shooting them. He's in the wind. And this is the problem we have in New York City, retaliatory shootings. And we're not getting ahead of it. When I return, John Katzmatidis, yours truly, Curtis Sleewe, to take you the rest of the way to 10 o'clock. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. No, he's your numero uno. This is Sid and Friends in the Morning. No, I get by with a little help from my friends. Let's kick off the by lighting up. Boy, from my friends, the star of the show. Boy, boy. I spoke to a radio broadcaster famous here in New York, WABC, Sid Rosenberg. Boy, this boy. is Sid and Friends in the Morning. No, I get by with a little help. From our friends. 77 WABC. Joe Piscopo. See that? It's your music, John. It's mine? Uh, I thought it was Joe Piscopo. I thought Joe, Joe Piscopo just walked. No, 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 Joe Piscopo. That's on Sunday. On Six Sunday. Eight. I just had a, uh, I got here right on time. Uh, I had Dido, the Uber driver from Westchester. And uh, he says, I'm from, I'm from Africa. I said, Africa? He says, no, I'm actually from Westchester. <laughs> but you know what he is? His uh, country of origin is somewhere on the continent of Africa, and I call them OAs, which are original Africans, as opposed to AAs, African-Americans. Well, you know, remember uh, uh, my driver, Pierre? Yes. Uh, and he passed away, unfortunately. Um, he was from, uh, uh, Haiti and he objected being called our African. He yeah. says, I'm not African. I'm from the Caribbean. That's right. Western hemisphere. He's not, uh, from uh, the continent of Africa, but it is interesting when I'm, when I see those who have come from the continent of Africa and I got to tell you, they work hard, John, <laughs> they work real hard. Like a lot of brand new immigrants do. And I say, hey, what country are you from? And right away they'll say Ghana or Guinea. Togo, right. Nigeria. And they're riding cabs, driving cabs, working 12, 14 hours a day, six days a week. And then I'll say to them, you're. Well, my driver is from the Ivory Coast. Mm. And he works uh, long hours. Yeah, from Senegal, so I tell them, oh, you speak French, right? Yeah, well, that's uh, our, our, our European language, they call it. Naturally, they have their own tribal languages. But when I call them OA, I say, you know, you're original Africans. He goes, you're damn right. Because when I come here, there's West Indians, there's Caribbeans, there's African Americans, and they don't accept them all that well, John. They're ostracized. We We assume if you're the same color... It's kumbaya. Not so. You know You know what I remember? You know when I got a reality check? About 40 years ago, I watched a Star Trek episode. Mm. You ready for this? Yes. And 
you go to your planet, and all half the people were black on one side of the face, and they're having a revolution. They're having a war. And Captain Kirk says to them, why are you guys having a war? You're both black, half your face. He says, don't you see? What, are you blind? He's black on the right hand of the face. Mm. I mean, that gives you a reality check of human beings are human beings. Sure. It doesn't matter if you're black on the right-hand side of the face or the left-hand side of the face. Right, well, we lump all people together. Like but That was a reality check. That's those Star Trek series really did uh, shows like that where, where it showed you that uh, uh, it brought a little bit back. The writers were excellent. No question, because I was never in Star Trek. Uh, are you into the old series or the new series or both? I'm a little bit of everything. You know why? It gives me... Um, a vision of, my God, this might be someday. It's like 1939 when people had the Dick Tracy watch. Well, guess what? 80 years later, I have a Dick Tracy watch. I can make a phone call from my Dick Tracy. That's right. My, my, they, except they call it the Apple watch instead of Dick Tracy watch. Yeah, you remember, there was... Uh there was Dick Tracy, there was Joe Dietzu, there was Flathead, there were all those characters... And Dick Tracy would always be talking into his watch. Now, the Star Trek series that were made in 1990, they have iPhones and iPads. Hmm. They didn't exist. So go figure that one out. So it's almost like Nostradamus. They, they were predictors of the future. Now, the top speed before they went to transwarp was warp speed 9.9. And they couldn't break the sound barrier. Their sound barrier for warp speed was 10. So at 9.9, it was 5 billion miles a second. I think so. I think that's what. So let me get this straight. You were into Star Trek, the original. Yes. Star Trek, the new. Yeah. But what I about. Mean, it just gave me vision. You know, I said, my God, could it be someday? But what about Star Wars, the movie? I, I watched it, yeah. But not as much as, uh, you know, it was more of a routine versus a. Uh, uh, a visionary thing of the future. So it's safe to call John Katsimatidis a Trekkie. I taught Frank Morano. <laughs> Have you ever been to any Trekkie conventions? I was. I was uh, in uh, Los Angeles or, or in Las Vegas one time. It wasn't a convention. It was the opening of, uh, of the... Uh, a Star Trek uh, pavilion or, or scene, and uh, the big the big item was that woman that played seven or nine of nine, that tall blonde. Uh, she was very stunning. She was going to be there, and they had lines uh, lines to get in. Let me bring you back in the time machine. It's Rod Sterling, and yes, uh, this is the Twilight Zone for you, John Katzmatidis. And I remember how you gave an introduction to Captain Kirk on the 5 o'clock roundtable discussion. You said, we were hobbled around in the student lounge at NYU, a 13-inch black-and-white RCA TV, to watch the first episodes of Star Trek. I remember doing that. Right in the lounge, there was about 50, 60 students hovered around one television set. What year was that about? Um, 
I went to NYU. My first year was 66. Okay, so 1966. It is now 2022, soon to be 2023. And the big story locally is that in the shadow of the school you went to, that your children went to, that Frank Morano's parents worked two jobs to send him to $55,000, no frill to become a violent. He actually graduated the process. New York City's first legal pot shop is is opening up, which means if your child is going to NYU and they have a degree in horticulture or hydroponics, they can just walk out across the street and get a job. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm. We're going to turn our society into a bunch of drug addicts because one thing leads to the other, uh, especially if... 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds start with pot. We're going to have problems. But also from a retail, because you're a hardcore retailer. You run the supermarket business. I worked as a night manager for AMP and a key man for AMP. So I knew a little bit about the business before they went out of business. But you've invested your whole life into Gristides now. D'Agostino started with Red Apple. If all of a sudden somebody comes outside, right, and starts selling fruits, or you have uh, a fresh direct, right, uh, standing outside, you know, and they're giving flyers, ah, why go to Gristini's? We'll deliver it home. That's almost like an unfair competition to you because you have a very tight margin. I don't think what people understand from a retail point of view, uh, John, is that by opening up a legal pot shop, they're going to sell product. They're going to make some money. We're going to get some taxes. But all the illegal dealers are going to realize, I can set up there. I can give better, better product better deals. I can I allow them to sample. Uh, I give them credit, which you can't really get uh, in that retail establishment. And most importantly... I'm not charging you taxes, so I can charge you well under whatever price well, are they're they charging. charging. Sales tax on pot? Yes. Oh, that's the whole reason for it being in in the business. I don't know spe- the specifics of the uh, charge, but the state's going to get their cut. The city's going to get their cut. And before you look at it, when you price compare, the black market sells it a lot cheaper. And in some instances, you've already developed a retail relationship with the dealers. They've been delivering for years before there was Grubhub. They had a whole movie done. The Pope of Greenwich Village was out. This one guy, John, in Topkin Square Park. I'm living right across the street at the time. That was the alphabet jungle. A tall, Jewish, schlubby-looking guy. Everybody's coming up to him, right? And they're giving him the orders. And then immediately he walked around the block. He went into a retail establishment, a storefront, and there were all bicycle messengers there. And he said, okay, you're delivering here, 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 here. It's the Pope of Greenwich Village. They were doing this in the 70s, and they were acting like, oh, they've reinvented the wheel. Nope. Nope. The black market is always going to stay five steps ahead of them. They already. Two things hurt our kids. Yes. The 12-year-olds, the 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds. I'm chairman of the uh, Police Athletic League right now. And we banned boxing, mm. especially to those ages. You know why? If you hit those kids enough times when the de- brains are developing, 12 years old, 14 years old, 16 years old, they're going to end up, they're going to lose 10, 15 points I kill. Mm. You saw what uh, Muhammad Ali ended up like? Oh, yeah, Parkinson, seriously. Well, you get hit in the head enough times. 
And, you know, they would say, oh, it's great for the kids. Oh, well, Curtis, follow the money. You know, the, the, the guy promoting it is making the money. And it's all about money. And, and it, me, it's about keeping the kids safe. And football, our national sport, follow the, you know, uh, if those kids get start hit getting hit at an early age, they're not going to be able to compete. Marijuana, same way. 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds, if you do the research, those kids are going to get hurt. So I'm talking to every mother and father out there. Whether you want your kid to be a football star, a boxing star, you know, make up your mind. You want your kids to grow up normal and have a healthy life, or do you want to feel good because they're a boxing star? You want to feel good because they're a football star? Well, I also feel it's sort of like uh, it's become very hip, very fashionable, you know, to be smoking, that a lot of our elected officials... They allow smoking pot, but they won't allow you to smoke a cigarette. Yeah. Well, where did where's that come from? I mean, you can't make this crap up. You're right. I mean, think of it there for a while. Smokers would be herded out into weather that we just uh, got through a few days ago where it was like sub-zero Arctic weather. They'd have to leave the office building or, like, leave your retail establishment because you weren't permitted to have people smoke on the premise. Freeze their took us off, go outside. But now you're right. When it comes to blazing away marijuana in any of its forms, whether it's in a cigar form, they call that a blunt, whether they're vaping it, whether they're just smoking it in what people classically see as a joint, they're doing it everywhere, John. Doing it everywhere. Let Walk me into tell you a- something. We're, we're going to turn our country into a bunch of dope addicts. You know who's getting even? Do your research. Frank Morano probably knows. Uh, do your research. The opioid, uh, opioid uh, wars, where we turned the opium Chinese. Opium wars, yeah. Yeah. The opium wars, we turned the Chinese into a bunch of dope addicts. Well, guess what? The Chinese have long memories. They're turning our country into a bunch of dope addicts. I know it was a great movie, The Sand Pebbles, that was all about that, how we were sending uh, basically warships into the Yangtze River to enforce the fact that these Chinese would have to take opium and they'd have to buy it from us, the Germans. The Roosevelt's made their fortune in doing that. They owned a lot of the opium. Well, it was the Roosevelt's made money in that. The Kennedys made money in the in the, in the scotch, uh, yep. in the, the liquor. Uh, follow the money. And then after you make the money, you try to become a legitimate citizen, becoming president of the United States. And you know what's funny, uh, John? Years and years ago when New York had so many tabloids, they uh, oftentimes the editor would say, hey, John, what do you got for me today? It's about the 1900s, 1910. You'd say, nothing, boss, yet. He goes, why don't you go pipe me up a story? What they meant by that is you go to the local opium den, you hit the pipe, and then you write a story. You just basically make it up. So before there was fake that news. That I didn't know about. Yeah, before there was fake news, you know, what Trump uh, basically. Was pipe me up a story. Yeah. No, they would tell you, hey, it's 3 o'clock. You know, our deadline is at 5. Why don't you go pipe me up a story? They'd go to the opium den, they'd hit the pipe, and then they'd write a story. That was proven later on to be completely wrong. It's like the Spanish-American War. You know, they say, remember the USS Maine? 
It had a boiler room explosion. Nobody blew up the USS mate, but they piped up the story that, oh, you see, the Spaniards did this. And then the next thing you know, there was Teddy Roosevelt sending the battleships in, and the Spaniards had no chance because they had a wooden fleet. We had, obviously, uh, metal ships at that time. We ended up not only taking— What do you call that in journalism? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you stretch the truth on a, on a headline so people read, read your story? No, in this, it's George Santos. You made it all up. Yeah. <laughs> and again, another thing. You you know where Horace Mann High School is, very prestigious high school. Upper up, East Side? Uh, right. Where, no, actually, where Riverdale meets Westchester. Oh, yes, yes. Got to pay a lot of money to go there. So this is another whopper he told. He said, yeah, well, you know, I went to Horace Mann. I want to thank my mother. She worked very hard to send me there. But then... She ended up with a cancer condition in my senior year, and I had to leave. We couldn't afford it any longer. So naturally, what did they do? They went to Horace Mann. Did you ever have a George Santos any time at any place? No. Um, Everything John is made up? Whatever you want me to be, I'll be. Everything. And the thing that has lingered, Joe Potashnik, who has a great show here. In fact, he had the very first talk show when WABC flips stacks of wax to talk, you know, religion on the line, and now he does it with the Rev, he called me, and he goes, uh, Curtis, I, I, I heard you and John talking about Jew hyphen-ish. And I say, yeah, what is that, uh, Rabbi Joe Potassi? So he said, this is when somebody is not a Jew, they're Goyim, but they like to be a Jew, so they go out to get the schmear on the bagel on Saturday, the day of Sabbath, and they walk past the shul, the synagogue, without going in. And they say, see, I'm Jew hyphen-ish. Oh, my God. You imagine if Jackie Mason were alive today. Uh, he'd have a, he had a ball. He you could, know, I did. I think I did the last. Uh, uh, I did I did a, a story on him one time. I had him oh, on the radio. man, he was so I think good. I, it was the last story of his life. Well, in fact, when we come back, i got to tell you. we got to find that and replay it. I have to tell you the story of how I ended up being the person who would introduce Rudy Giuliani to the crowd when he was running against David Dinkins. I wasn't the first choice. Jackie Mason was. But then I became the first choice. (laughs) When we come back, oh, would Jackie Mason have a field day, a one-man show on Broadway, just dealing with George Santos's new phrase, like George Costanza, I'm Jew hyphen ish. Right here exclusively on WABC. This is Sid and Friends in the Morning. 77 WABC. Oh, it harkens me back, John, to the wake for Aretha Franklin. It was in Detroit. Your very dear friend uh, Bill Clinton was on the stage, and they had him positioned right next to Louis Farrakhan. And afterwards, they all said, why were you sitting next to Louis Farrakhan? said, I was sitting next to Louis Farrakhan. (laughs) (laughs) It goes back to, you, you know... When you were running for mayor, when I was running for mayor, you get a thousand pictures. Oh, yeah. 
There's no way you know who the, who the people are. Some that you wish. And then the, the, uh, years later, the village voice would say, Curtis Lewa took a picture with, with uh, Farrakhan. He was sitting next to him. Must be good friends. Well, remember the picture that surfaced after the eight years of his presidency, Barack Obama, that they hid him and Farrakhan. They had taken a picture together. They were... Uh, they were very friendly in Chicago. They were both based out of Chicago. And that that photo never surfaced when he was running for office the first time against John McCain, the second time for re-election against Mitt Romney, and then eventually when he was in retirement, that picture surfaced. Now, I, I will tell you, it happened to us. Yes. We were having dinner, uh, at, at some dinner with uh, President Clinton, uh, and uh, President Clinton was sitting down. And next to him was Margo, and next to Margo was me. So it was just an innocent picture. Is that my phone? Yes, it is. See that? It's running constantly, 24-7-365. I have a feeling I know where this story is going. Oh, yeah. Because so uh, I'm, inv- I'm involved in this. You were in it. You, you were involved in that. <laughs> you, cut, you cut me out. And they just show a picture of Bill Clinton and Margo. And they're, they're insinuating that there's an affair there, even though I'm sitting there. So I was doing morning radio at the time with Ron Kuby at the old WABC. And I'm railing about this uh, blonde hair beauty that's next to Bill Clinton. And I'm going on and on. And your wife naturally took great umbrage to it, uh, John. And uh, boy... She was, like, uh, ready to hang me from the nearest uh, yarn on. And then our mutual friend, our mutual friend, uh, Mark Simone. No, it's not my phone, no. Yeah, you can't hear it. Oh, wait a second. Hold on, hold on. How many phones are there? Oh, you're right, you're right. Uh, Who's calling you? No, no, it's the alarm. It's the alarm. Ah, (laughs) It's supposed to wake you up. Uh, Well, you know me. You're going crazy thinking it's my phone. I never go to sleep. You know that, John. Oh, wait a second. Okay. Hopefully it stays quiet. Wow. See that? It was my phone, not even yours. So back to the story. So this tabloid picture of your wife, Margot, and Bill Clinton goes viral all over the world. And everybody wants to know who's that drop-dead, gorgeous, blonde woman that's sitting there with uh, then-President Bill Clinton. And I'm railing about it in morning radio, and your wife is all fired up. I'm going to get that guy if it's the last thing I do. And our mutual friend, Mark Simone, who's like Mr. New York City in radio, says, no, I know, Curtis. I'm going to bring you together with Curtis Margot. They were acknowledging me, giving me an award in Italian-American Foundation at the Old Waldorf Hotel. Big banquet. And that's the first time I met your wife, Margot. And let me tell you something. She was, like, fired up like a, like a stick of TNT. And it was Mark Simone who acted like... She uh, was mad as hell and she couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, but he was the peacemaker. He was the peacetime consigliere. I owe Mark Simone a lot because... He calmed her down to the point where we could have a conversation, and then eventually I did my mea copus. But I had no idea uh, who Marco Katsimatidis was that time. After that, we developed a great friendship, and both you and Margot have served on our Guardian Angel Board of Directors uh, for a long, long time. But, boy, I'm telling you, if looks could kill, I would have been dead on arrival at the Wardorf. 
Who was our chairman of uh, of uh, it was uh, our friend from the New York Post? Oh yeah, Johnny Legit, aka Paul Carlucci. Paul Carlucci, where is Paul? Now he's down in Florida. He's retired on Murdoch money. The Promised Land. Yeah, let me tell you some boy. That guy. Uh, he, he, I got to tell you a great story. You'll love this, uh, John. You know, you think you're the editor of the New York Post, the publisher, excuse me. He replaced uh, Rupert Murdoch's son. You think the publisher can determine what goes in the newspaper. So it was right before the Super Bowl, and Dan Marino, who was one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time in the NFL, and I think was on the CBS broadcast, his agent calls Paul, and he says, Paul, could you do me a favor, please? Page 6 has this story about Dan Marino having a child out of wedlock. This will destroy all of his sponsorships, you know, you, you got to get rid of that story. So Paul tells him straight up, he goes, you don't understand how this business works. If I tell one portion of the New York Post, the powerful page six, not to publish your story, I guarantee you it'll surface somewhere else. So back then they didn't have it online. So the next morning his son, Paul Jr., calls up legit Johnny Legit and goes, Dad, you, you were really successful. It's not in page six. He said, wow, they actually listen to me. He goes, it's even better. It's on the front page, Dad. <laughs> he goes, I don't, you don't control something like the New York Post because every entity there is a powerful engine that many people go to in the morning. Now that it's online, it's what some people do. The very first thing they do is to go to the New York Post. You know what I, I look at in the New York Post each and every morning, my horoscope. I gauge what I you do. You really believe that? I do. And you why? know why? Why? Remember, Nancy Reagan believed in astrology. She kept advising Ronald Reagan at the time, please follow your astrological chart. Don't go to that meeting today. Your chart is negative. Ah, Nancy, I'm president now. I got him. And he went out there. Remember, his press secretary, Brady, got shot in the head decapacitated him for the rest of his life. Ronald Reagan almost was killed by Hinckley, who ironically, nowadays, John, is walking around and doing concerts. Concerts! A guy who almost killed the president of the United States. But from then on, he listened to his wife, Nancy, who was in tune with one of the top astrologers when he had his meetings with Gorbachev. Everything was based on the astrological charge. It his chief of staff went nuts, uh, Reagan at that time. Uh, and he just, oh, my God, what, what are you doing? I said, no, 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 look, my wife was correct. The ast- astrological chart, if I would have listened to my wife that morning, I wouldn't have been shot. I was almost killed. I, I'm a true believer in that. I have a feeling you are not John Katzmatidis. I, it's a lot of crap. You think so? I'm telling you that for many, many years, that was the reason that some people would pick up the hard copy of the New York Post before you could get in online, was for the astrological chart. They were that good. The Post, the best astrological chart out of the many that I've seen. You know, sports, astrological chart, business. The last reason you bought the New York Post was for the current events, was for the uh, opinions. Well, let's take a break. And right after the break, you know who we have? Kathy Kangas, who Ernie Anastas recommended yesterday to talk about 
dogs and cats, and she's the deputy uh, a director or something of uh, the ASPCA in Connecticut. Let's find out. What are we going to? How are we, we going to save our dogs and cats? Can I look up your astrological chart this morning? Absolutely. What, what is your sign? I, I'm a Virgo. Virgo. I'm an Aries. So we'll see what the New York Post says. I'm telling you, I live by say? this. Well, when we come back uh, right. after we after Stay we tuned. after we interview Kathy, who's going to tell us how we can save more it's, dogs it's and cats. Cat and Curtis, or Curtis or Cat? No, no, it's Cat and Curtis. You're the boss. Right. <laughs> I'm the horse here at WABC as we substitute. For Sid Rosenberg, he'll be back on Monday as we continue with our live and local program. Even when people take off, there's never best of because that's always worst of. It's live and local exclusively here at WABC. This is Sid and Friends in the Morning. 77 WABC. Beautiful music. Yeah, but I think this song came out when you had your very first cat in your store, Meeps. Meeps. I sent you a picture of Meeps. Right. With I the- have an eight by ten picture of, um, of my first cat in my first store up in my office. And how many progeny from Meeps? Meeps worked in the store with me and made a hundred and thirty-eight kittens. Wow. And we gave them away to kittens and Every customer we gave the kittens to bought the cat food in our store. Oh, very That's a lot of cat food. <laughs> You're doggone right. And That's I know I know what it's like. We have 18 rescue cats in our apartment and they stand there it's like they're queued up when it's time they they know the timing of when they're going to get fed and then we give them treats too. They have all these treats they never had before, remember? Absolutely. Now, with us well we were talking to Ernie and Astis and we got into a discussion about how we are sick and tired of all these cats and dogs being euthanized. Yes. And and Ernie has a friend, uh, that uh, an acquaintance, uh, and her name is Kathy Kangas, and she's associated with the ASPCA in Connecticut. And he suggested we talk to her. And on the line with us is Kathy Kangas. Well, Kathy, uh, Happy New Year and Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I'm actually on the board of the Humane Society of the United States, and my passion is ending euthanasia. Oh, my God. That's the person we want to talk to. (laughs) Thank you. Well, listen, it's horrible because every year in America alone, over 3 million healthy dogs are put, uh, put to sleep, are euthanized, along with cats and it really is uh, almost a pandemic because during COVID, everyone I mean, was three million dogs. Three million dogs a year. Yes. How many cats? Uh, it's in the millions. Uh, we think it's between two to two point five million. That's cats. genocide. I mean, yes. you know, I mean, it is. That is six million dogs and cats. Then. Yes. Oh, my God. I really think it's a disgrace in America because there's no need for it. Um, I think there's an ignorance about dogs and cats coming out of shelter. People almost have a view that, you know, well, they're tainted or they're not right or they're troubled. And, in fact, you know, in any shelter on any day, 
It could be a purebred. It could be a mixed breed. It could be a young dog, a puppy, a senior dog. And even more sad is that so many of them are elderly. They need that home. They're being dumped in shelters, sadly, post-COVID, faster than ever. We really, I mean, every shelter right now, unfortunately, is full. Now, Kathy uh, uh, Kangas, you're up there in Connecticut just to give you an idea of what's happening here in our city. Uh, First, you had John who ran for mayor, and he was the first ever to introduce of any candidate in America no-kill shelter idea for New York City. Right. And then when I had my shot recently against Eric Adams, the same thing. I believe in no-kill shelters. It's an idea but everybody comes up with an excuse why it can't be done. How would you envision it taking place? Because you know the large number of, uh, especially dogs and cats, that sometimes are uh, uh, surrendered to the shelters by people for a variety of reasons. Either they're sick or ill, they can't maintain the pets, they can't feed them, they don't have the money, and they think if I give it to a shelter, they'll find them a home of their own, which is not always the case. You're absolutely right. Unfortunately, there's so many prongs, if you like, to this problem. Number one, just overbreeding. Number two, puppy mills. Number three, the shelters. Absolutely. I mean, it would be, that would be ideal, and that's what it should be, that there are no-kill shelters, and that we need to start viewing shelters a little bit like it's a foster home. They come in. You know, they're there for a couple of days in an ideal world or a couple of weeks, and then they find that ideal home. It's because right now there are so many that we see dogs even coming into a shelter, and three hours later they're being euthanized. There's also such, you know, another prong to the problem, and that is that people just in these times can't afford the vet bills, you know, can't afford... You know, you go into a, a, a vet hospital for something, and it's $1,000. So there's so many different problems. Plus, you've also got the issue that there has been a little bit of a, a trend, and I, it's an awful one, but everybody wants to get, you know, the Labradoodle or the Diddle-Doodle or all these different breeds that they feel, oh, it's more hypoallergenic, it's a better breed. And, in fact, no dog is hypoallergenic, but it's just causing more and more of these dogs in shelters to be euthanized. There just are not enough homes right now to take all these animals in. And, and is there a solution? I mean, I mean, me and Curtis were joking around yesterday we should get a big island and put all the cats on and get another and call it Cats Island. And then Steve Boxer, my friend, called in and says there is a Cats Island in in the Bahamas, and get another island call it Dog's Island. And well, if you do that, I'm with you. Uh, that's actually my dream right now. I am looking to start a huge sanctuary here in Connecticut where we could take in dogs, cats that are unadoptable, that nobody's ever going to pull out of the shelters, and have it as a true sanctuary. We're not going to expect that they find a home but we'd like them to come there and have their forever home. So it, it's something I'm just starting to work on right now, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's terrible, and it's also a little bit, it's disheartening and heartbreaking 
for a lot of people working in the shelters because people are walking in with a senior dog, as an example, and saying, I want to get rid of my dog. He or she is old because I want to get a new puppy. So it really is. That is so, I mean, that is so heartless. It, it's you know, heartless. let me tell you something. My my son's dog, Nikki, yes. died at, uh, uh, you know, they they said they'd have to put her to sleep because he wasn't well, and, bum, bum, bum. and we sat on the floor and cried for an hour and a half with him. Oh, I know. I, I mean, to me, I, I love my dogs. I, I tease. I love my dogs more than my husband. I think you know my husband, John, Ed Kangas. Ed Kangas, uh, the chairman of Deloitte & Touche. Uh, yes. And he fired Louis Chervant. <laughs> That's right. Well, he he mentioned he knew you, but we he's, love our he's dogs. He's a very smart and, man, and uh, his um, uh, and then he was followed by uh, uh, our friend in uh, Staten Island. Yes, exactly, uh, Alberta Cow. Alberta Cow, and his I birthday know. is on December second, the same as my wife's. Oh, isn't that funny? And he was treasurer of my campaign when I ran for mayor in twenty thirteen. Well, do you know, he now is, I mean, he's got dog stickers on his car. He has a big sign. You know, I love dogs. It's humans that annoy me because he's got so passionate about this cause now, seeing it through my eyes and all the suffering that is going on. And it's so senseless. Uh, You know, it's so many things for our beautiful, you know, dogs and cats are our best friends, their family members. And, you know, for those of us that love them, we all understand that. But it really is a horrific thing right now. The kill rates have gone through the roof. People are dumping their dogs, um, you know, and just dropping them off and leaving them there. And that poor dog feels so bewildered. But there's no need for it. You know, we have to be able to shut down puppy mills. Um, we have to stop, you know, the American Kennel Club. Every time a dog comes out of a puppy mill, they give it an AKC certificate. So they make money from that. That is not right. Those dogs are not, you know, should not be warranted that. And we have to end this stream of breeding that is happening in the United States. Now, Kathy, um, when I go to the shelters in New York City with my wife, Nancy, uh, when we look at the dogs, the predominant number of dogs now that are um, sacrificed over to the shelters are what we think of as attack dogs, security dogs, pit bulls, rottweilers, bull mastiffs. They're fierce-looking dogs, and they can be fierce. Right. And so a lot of people potentially coming in looking to get a dog, they say, wow, they are all these pit bulls, they're all these bull mastiffs, all these rottweilers. It's like, I, I don't want to bring a dog like that home. Uh, you know, I've got uh, elderly parents or I've got children or grandchildren. It's like, how do we deal with that? Well, that is a different, uh, what I mentioned, the different prongs of this problem. That is one of them. And very sadly, another revolting and horrific and cruel crime that's off, you know, that's being committed, dog fighting. And it's most likely all the time connected to bigger, you know, bigger and worse crimes. Um, But they are breeding pit bulls, well, by the thousand. 
to put in these dogfighting rings, and it's a very tough thing. The Humane Society of the United States do have a program where we train law enforcement and help them and know how to go in and break up these horrible rings where dogs are tied on chains, left outside, starved. Kathy, we're almost out of time, but we want to continue this conversation because this conversation has to be continued. Dr. Peter Michalos just texted me uh, that there's a cat island in Japan. I'm going to look into that. Oh, yeah. That's right. He's absolutely right. Uh, Our uh, director of operations, Guardian Angels, K.G. Oda, who you've met there, took pictures of him. A lot of cats. They're all cats. He's right, Dr. Michalos. Wow. I told you, he's our in-house genius. Well, <laughs> Kathy, give uh, Ed uh, my regards, and uh, let's figure out how we save six million cats and dogs a year. That's going to be our project uh, for 2023, and uh, thank you, and Happy New Year. Oh, thank you so very much for having me on. It's a delight, and you're right. 2023, that's what we're taking on. Well, let me tell you something, uh, John. When we come back, you're not going to get away with this. I'm going to be reading your your horoscope from the New York Post in my own. All right. You'll okay. see how important it is to start your day with I'll the decide, New York Post horoscope. I will decide what goes on with the company year-end based on that New York yes, Post. Yes, absolutely. This is Sid and Friends in the Morning. What you say? Be just a friend. Oh, you're my best friend. 77 WABC. And my name is Charles. The sun says hundreds of patients at the Astro. Now I like a woman that's quiet. A woman who carries herself like Miss Universe. See, John, this is by the floaters. This was a time when, if you were in the dating scene, you had to reveal what sign you were. That would be the thing. If you were at a bar, let's say a disco, they'd want to know what sign you were. That starts the conversation going. Yeah, well, uh, I got to reel you in because, you know, Virgo, in Greek, the Parthenos, the sixth astrological sign in the zodiac, that's you. Am I having a good day or a bad day? Well, uh, let me, can I read to you your uh, horoscope? New York Post, I swear by it. It's the first thing I read in the morning. So Virgo is anybody from August 24th to September 23rd. So that covers a lot of our audience. John, you may be having second thoughts about a plan or project of some kind, but this is not the time to be giving up on it. As your ruler, Mercury is beginning its retrograde phase, you would be wise to postpone making a decision for several weeks. Wow. You know, we we are closing, I won't tell you which company, a a $250 or $253 million loan. See? Today or tomorrow. See? So according to that, I should postpone it. Well... No, I would say you do what John Katsimatidis has done his whole life because uh, you're the billionaire, right? <laughs> well, I mean, if I'm getting good advice from the New York Post, you know, $253 million, you know. What yeah, the this heck? would say postpone making a decision for several weeks. Now, on the phone with us, I understand we have some 
Jake's Casino on Long Island has been awarded uh, the right to have a thousand more slot machines. That means there's going to be a lot of fun in Long Island. With us today uh, is the person that runs that operation. We have uh, Mr. Boyle. Yes. Good morning, John. Good morning, Curtis. Good morning. Tell us about it. Yeah, so we're very excited. I guess late last night, Governor Hochul signed the bill, which will uh, allow Jake's Casino in Suffolk County to go from 1,000 slot machines to 2,000. Uh, which means a huge expansion of Jake's. We're going to really upgrade it. And I was just listening to your financing uh, uh, issue there, John, and uh, we're actually going to have a, probably a $200 million-plus expansion of Jake's. It's going to look beautiful in a couple That's going to create a lot of jobs in Long Island. Without a doubt. Tons of jobs, and all, uh, both construction jobs and permanent jobs. Now, well, what, is your, all- what is your – are you a Virgo? What are you? Well, it's funny. I was listening. My wife's a Virgo. I'm actually a Cancer. I'm July. Okay, so make sure you tell your wife don't make any important decisions in, in today. Put it off for three weeks. I will. I'll let her know. <laughs> now, your Jake's Casino operation is that a Racino, meaning is it all electric, or is it a full all-out casino? It is electric. That's right. It, it's a video lottery terminal. Uh, you probably both you probably know we have going to have seven casinos in New York State, four upstate, and now three upstate, uh, three downstate in the city or on Long Island or Westchester, which are actually big dealer commercial uh, with the tables. Ours is just slot machines, but people love it. Our, our uh, parking lots packed morning, noon, and night. Are you though putting in your bid to be one of those three downstate locations? that would be considered to convert from being the electronic casino to a full-scale casino? No, I think we have such a loyal base where we are that I think we're going to continue to be uh, slot machines only, uh, and uh, we'll let the the big guys uh, like uh, present company uh, fight out for the one that's going to be downstate in the city. Now, the old one-armed bandits that everybody remembers, you go walk into an old casino, you pull the lever, and boom. Yeah. It's not like that anymore, right? That's correct, Curtis. It's no longer a one-armed bandit. It's just it's electronic. You're pushing a button, uh, but just as exciting. And, uh, and the payouts are very good here. Uh, by law, our payouts are set. I know some casinos, they kind of change it uh, in Vegas and, and Jersey, but our percentage of payout to the winners are set by law, and it's very generous. What is the percentage of your take that has to go to the state or to the county or to the local municipality that you operate in? Yeah, so ours is a unique situation. It's called the Public Benefit Corporation. There's only two government-owned casinos in the entire country, and Jake's is one of them. Eighty percent of it goes to New York State to the Department of Education. So every dollar that's put in there, 80 percent of it is going to our New York State schools, 10% 10% of it goes to Suffolk County, and we've given some big numbers, tens of millions of dollars to Suffolk County, and then 10% that we use to run the operation. You know, so many people were weaned on the fact that the uh, lottery, uh, the casinos, the track, that the money goes to education. Is there a way that that could be shown to the general public? Because a lot of them always ask, how do I know that that money is actually going to the education of children and not to just uh, put new asphalt on the streets. Yeah, well, that's a great point, Curtis. And as you probably know, I was a state senator for, for 10 years before I became, came over to Suffolk County OTB. 
And what they did originally with lottery was a shell game. They say, we're going to put the lottery money into education, but then they just took it out another way. So it was just really ver- reversing the money. Here in uh, the OTB in Suffolk, though, it doesn't. It's on top of all the, all the extra money. They're not taking anything out of the general fund. So every dollar that goes to New York State goes to our schools. Now, there are a lot of people listening right now who grew up with OTB in the five boroughs. We don't have it anymore because uh, as the bookie, we couldn't make money in the five boroughs of the city of New York. I I can't believe that. I mean, Jake, you've been around for a long time. Not Jake. Oh, my God. Phil, uh, you've been around for a long time. What went wrong with the five boroughs of OTB? Well, you know, in this city, I'm not really sure. I think perhaps they were more generous than, uh, like they say, the only government is the only place the person that could lose money is a bookie. But uh, but Suffolk County, we've done very well. Obviously, the, the, the horse racing industry is not as popular as it was back in the, the 50s and 20s. It was the B-sport in America. Uh, that's not the case anymore. But there's still a multi-billion dollar horse racing industry in New York State. And we can make money. We just can't pay, you know, $100,000 if someone is sweeping the floor when you're doing it. Well, I remember there was Howie the Horse Samuels. Remember, he always wanted to be governor of the state of New York. He was always like... Uh, Howard Samuels. That's I right. mean, you got to be as old as us to remember Howard. Right, but it basically <laughs> created that whole concept of the OTB, the off-track betting. And at right. first, it was a boom in New York City. And you know how, how it took a dive. When David Dinkins was the mayor, instead of putting somebody who was aware of financing of sports, like when Rudy Giuliani was elected, he put Ali Sherman, the old coach of the Giants, in, uh-huh. who knew sports, knew betting. He put in Hazel Dukes, who was the head of the NAACP. Uh-huh. And we never recovered after that because she obviously had no uh, no knowledge of gaming, no knowledge of the track. And then obviously it just it didn't make – and then my husband-in-law, David Patterson – Put it out of its Governor misery. Governor Patterson, give him respect. Well, Governor Patterson, he put, he put it out of them. How is it you've been able to make money out there on OTB? More honest well, people. We, yeah, exactly. No, we, we, we do make some money. On, is that on, a, on, that's an admission. Write that down. <laughs> Uh, no, well, we also have uh, almost 50 quick bets relo- location, which is you can go into the bar or a car store and, 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 and bet on the horses there. So we have a, an extensive network of people who want to bet the horses. Obviously, our golden goose, if you will, is the Jake's Casino. Uh, we, we originally were in bankruptcy maybe 10 years ago and now have come out of it. And Jake's, they're, they're doing very well there. And people are having a great time. That's the most important thing. It's, it's a win-win. The people love to, to gamble there. And we also get money for our schools and county. Well, Phil, I uh, do appreciate your update. The fact that you have a 1,000 additional slots is signed uh, by the governor of no, the state of New York. Wait. Tell everybody in Long Island, Long Island your location. I don't know. where. I, I, I have no idea where it is. <laughs> so it's easy to remember. It's Jake's 58, so it's exit 58 on the Long Island Expressway. I hope you gentlemen will stop by on the way out east that you, and perhaps come to our ribbon cutting. Uh, it's a big uh, building on the north side of the LIE. Uh, and the parking lot is full. Look for that, and you'll find us. Sounds good. We'll do it. Thank, Thank you. So Happy New Year. Are you having a New Year's party? We sure are. Everyone's welcome. We're giving away. Are you open uh, twenty-four hours a day? Uh, we're open twenty-four hours. Uh, I mean, sorry, twenty hours. From we close at four a.m. and we open at eight a.m. Besides that, we're open all day every year. Okay, sounds good. Great. You Thank never you, know. Happy I might New show Year. up. Okay. <laughs> Take hope- care. Take care, John. Bye, Curtis. Now, uh, John, he sort of gave leeway. He mentioned you as a potential player uh, of having I a... used to be a player. 
No, I know that. You were a big player. I quit. They I all wanted you. Trust me, you were the whale. They wanted you had, <laughs> coming into the casino. You know, so, so some people have sex appeal. Yes. I have checks appeal. <laughs> and your checks don't bounce. But I saw a full-scale article in the New York Post about a week ago. You, along with others that you know in the, the business community, are vying to get one of those three licensed all-purpose casinos that the governor has signed off on. in the New on. York Post, right? That's right. It uh, must be reliable information. It, well, it, it mentions you and a conglomerate in Coney Island. It mentions Steve Cohen, owner of the uh, Mets in Flushing. It mentioned that Jay-Z is getting involved with a conglomerate to try to bring a casino into Times Square. Another effort on Ross over uh, by the catacombs, I call it now, because there's nothing over by the Hudson Yards. Uh, I know Vito Fasella had put a, in uh, potentiality for the North Shore of Staten Island. Where is that whole process? How, how does this now move forward so that eventually uh, some of you are chosen to be the licensed casino operators of the full-scale casinos? I want to go to the website, find out who the largest uh, political contributors are, and you'll know who the winner is. <laughs> But now your consortium, am I correct? The Yankees are involved in your consortium? Uh, I am partners with the Yankees in the in the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Hmm. And uh, I know uh, that uh, uh, they're looking at a couple of investments. I am not a member of any consortium. Ah, I see, I see. But you are a big promoter of Coney Island. And I want to let you know that I know John will not be in Times Square when the ball drops but he will, cold. he will be there for the annual polar bear run into the ocean and Coney Island. True New Yorkers will be in Coney Island on January 1st. There will be hundreds of folks there, John, hundreds who go running into the into the Atlantic Ocean there. My God, I can't believe it. I, I can't <laughs> believe it. That's a true New Yorker. True, I don't know. True New Yorkers I'm, are not where when I, the, I can't the ball find drop. the right adjective. Let's put it this I, way. I got to tell you, in all the years, and I've been down there with the Guardian Angels patrolling Times Square when the ball drops, but it's I'm hard-pressed to find anybody who's from the five boroughs. It's like if you ask people, uh, have you been to the Statue of Liberty from the five boroughs? No. Have you been to Ellis Island? No. Uh, have you taken the Circle Line cruise around Manhattan? Yeah, if my relatives come in. But what about yourself? No. Have you been on top of the the, uh, Empire State Building? No. So people who live in the city oftentimes don't even get involved with all the things that are here. One thing, John. I have some new breaking news from a very reliable newspaper. What is that? The New York Post. Okay. Uh, I think New York holds the record of 50 states. The record of most decline in population over the last last two years. Yep. 431,000. So on that note, let me read my horoscope to see if they're telling me that I need to go south. Okay, so I'm Aries, which is March 21st, April 20th. It's a fire sign. That means I don't go over a wall, under a wall. I go right through the wall. Upheavals on the work front. Uh Uh-oh. Did you hear that, John? Upheavals on the work front may be alarming to Lydia some. Lydia must have yelled the chat again. <laughs> may be alarming to some, but you see them as a golden opportunity. In the greater scheme of things, 
All change is good, and the changes about to take place will put you in pole position for a promotion. John, apparently you're going to give me a promotion. Absolutely. Do I get more hours to do here at WABC? You're going to get double. (laughs) I understand we got Lydia's reports, and I understand Lydia's on. Lydia. I did not yell at Chad. You did not yell at Chad? He yells at me. He Uh, yells at me. You raised his blood pressure. He yells at me. He yells at me. But I I love you guys all like my brothers. That's how Curtis is like the big, big brother. And then you got Chad who's the middle brother. And then I'm the little sister that they kind of uh, beat around and yell at. You're a big girl for a little sister. (laughs) So this report is sponsored by Benjamin Steakhouse. And this is a topic that Curtis knows all too well, hate crimes against Jewish people. We have seen an incredible rise in the number of hate crimes in New York City, over 125% compared to the same time last year. And listen to just some of these numbers. 94% of these hate crimes against Jewish people were uh, the Orthodox Jews. And guess what percentage of the perpetrators were minorities? 97%. So Curtis and John, maybe you both can explain to me what is going on. Why are African Americans attacking Jewish people? I mean, this is statistics. This is, I'm just going by the NYPD statistics. 97% of the people that are attacking Orthodox Jews are African American. You know why? Because they get the most publicity out of it. Mm. You need to think about that. What's You know, I mean, you go beat up a, a Greek, you go be, beat up an Italian, nobody's going to write about that. You go beat up a Jew, it'll be front page. I also think they're like an easy target because I Orthodox Jewish people, they kind of just, they're very insular. They don't bother anybody. They're just working hard. And then it's kind of almost like a bullying mentality. That's true too. Just like we see like a lot of Asians being picked on as well. People think, oh, they're very cerebral. They're very smart. They're not going to fight back. You know, they're not going to come after an Albanian because we don't, they don't know what's in our pocket. Well, let me tell you that in poll <laughs> after poll, When people are asked who are the most highly regarded African-American males in the country, first, obviously, is Barack Obama, the former president. You know who generally finishes second? Louis Farrakhan. Boom. And there is no more virulent anti-Semite in the world than Louis Farrakhan. So if you're looking up to a guy like Louis Farrakhan, who is always attacking Jews, then clearly, especially those who are emotionally disturbed uh, they may feel that's a license to attack Jews. We see a lot of that is happening now to Asians for the same reasons. A lot of it is envy and jealousy because Jews do relatively well, Asians do relatively well. And so you look at what they have, and then right away you feel like, well, I should have that too, and you attack them. The Asians are suffering from a lot of the same uh, situations in terms of all the Asian hate crimes. So I think that's it. Then you have people like Jay-Z who's a billionaire now rapper who does a rap song called Why Do Jews Own All the Real Estate in the World? When anybody could tell you, wait, the number one owner of real estate is the Church of England. There's not a Jew in that Anglican church. Oh, no, I think the Vatican is number one. Well, even if you say the Vatican, there are no Jews involved. The Vatican, you know why priests are not allowed to get married? Because then they get uh, the church gets all of their wealth. It used to be a family business. So some pope in the 12th century, 13th century, decided that instead of, if we don't want them to be married, we don't want the bishops to be married, we don't want the cardinals to be married. So all the properties from the wealthy 
people that had the church as a church business ended up going to the Vatican. And the third biggest landowner in the world is the House of Fraud, the Saudi Arabians. Not a Jew amongst them. So you get a guy like Jay-Z saying, why do Jews own all the real estate in the world? That's not true. And then people be, oh. You see, they took all the land. They take all the money. They're taken from us. And in a lot of our neighborhoods, Lydia, Jews live side by side with minorities where other white people have fled. Other white people have fled. A lot of the Orthodox and Hasidim, they live right in the minority communities. They have not fled. 151 of the 194 assaults against Jewish people were perpetuated in just four neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Crown Heights, Williamsburg, Borough Park, and Flatbush Midwood. So it's those four neighborhoods, to go to your point, Curtis, what you're saying, because they're living side by side with the African-American community. And so I think there is this kind of like, hey, this was our neighborhood first. Who are you to come in? You're trying to take over. And so they're also kind of pushing back. But I also see in kind of that hip hop culture that it's cool to hate Jewish people. We saw what happened with Kanye West. And it's it's really sad. It, it is. It's really sad. They're just they're just they're not bothering anybody. They're just practicing their own faith. They're very peaceful people. And, um, you know, and what's an, here's another fact for you of all of those crimes that have been per- perpetuated against Jewish people. Only four people went to jail for for all the assaults and all the things that they have done. Well, that's so par- they really need to toughen up the hate. That, that's par for the course for any crime in New York City. Lastly, though. Jews years ago, when they were under attack, because this has always taken place, formed Shamrim patrols. They patrol their own neighborhood. And one man would see something happening, John, and he would yell, Hopsom. And every other man in that neighborhood, whatever they were doing, the butcher, the baker, somebody driving a car, would drop whatever they were doing and run into the streets. And they'd run those thugs right out of town. Now, Ever since, the police department has told, no, don't do that. You don't need to take the law into your own hands. Well, guess what? (laughs) If there's not going to be cops there, then the men of the community have got to do it for the women, the children, the elderly, and the infirm. So the origin of Shamram, and I've spoken in many of their banquets, and I say, hopsum till the day you die. That means you drop everything, you run out in the streets, and you protect your neighborhood and those who can least protect themselves. And every neighborhood has to do that. Or you are subject to being coming under attack uh, by these thugs and thugettes who care before nothing about we, life. Before we go to break, let's yes. remind everybody, Lydia is going to be on between 10 and 12, substituting for Brian Kilmaid. And uh, you did well yesterday, except uh, you're playing that dope addict song at the beginning. I won't play it again. I will not. We're going to play fun, happy music. We're going to be in the holiday season. We're going to keep the energy up. And I love our listeners. We have, I'm not, we have the best listeners. And John, they they are so effusive in their love and support for WABC. And of course, for you, because you brought it back from the dead. And it's just so incredible. It's just so incredible to be working at such an iconic station that literally is worldwide famous. Uh, again, this report is sponsored by Benjamin Steakhouse. They've got the best service, the juiciest steaks, great appetizers, side dishes as well. Two locations, Midtown and Westchester, BenjaminSteakhouse.com. And I've been there. The food is great. It is very good. Albanian owned. There you go. <laughs> Let's take a break. And uh, we'll be coming back uh, later on at eight uh, at 840 with Dr. Peter Mihalos. And he's got some uh, uh, remarkable stories to tell us. And uh, 
And um, let's take that break. Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is Sit in Friends in the Morning. Entertaining and informative. Boy, you're my best friend. 77 WABC. President Joe Biden is in St. Croix. He flew away. If you're on uh, a Southwestern flight, you can forget about it. Wherever you're stuck or stranded, you may be there until after the first of the year. But, John, I hearken everyone back to the interview you did with uh, Dr. Fauci. It was in early January of 2020. I remember because I was listening as you always have newsbreakers on Sunday morning, on my way back from Atlantic City, where I was a guest at the World Martial Arts Expo at the Tropicana, I was on a Greyhound coming back because I had a shift to do at WABC. And this is the conversation you had with Fauci, in which he acted like, don't worry, be happy, everything is copacetic. What can you tell the American people uh, about what's going on? Should they be scared? Uh, I don't think so. The American people should not be worried or frightened by this. It's a very, very low risk to the United States. It isn't something that the American public needs to worry about or be frightened about because we have ways of preparing, of screening, of people coming in, and we have ways of responding like we did with this one case in Seattle, Washington, who had traveled to China and brought back the infection Oh, boy, slowly I turn step by step. We have ways of repairing and screening the passages. Question, the question, was he, did he know that, uh, that COVID was bad or was he relying on the Chinese that were, being, that were honest with him or he was part of the problem? I think he was relying on the Chinese because he had a business relationship with them, and he remembered. He trusted them. And we, we eventually we found out we subsidized that biological lab in Wuhan with biological weapons. Why was our American tax dollars subsidizing a bioweapons laboratory in Wuhan? And they tried to make us believe it was the wet shop, you know, where they sold the different animals for consumption Turned out to be bull feathers. But, John, that's an interview he wishes he never gave. Like uh, like we see uh, <laughs> George Santos wishes he never opened up his mouth to you on Monday night, that exclusive interview, because he's been talking himself into a political grave ever since. You know how many people... We do some important interviews once in a while. Important. He has had that interview played to him over and over over the years, and you know he cringes. Because he made it seem like, no problem. January 31st, just a a few days after you did that interview, Donald Trump imposes a travel ban on everything going in and out of Red China. Immediately, de Blasio, Pelosi, Biden call him xenophobic, a racist. And it was spreading like wildfire. And so now, look at what's happening. We are being told we're going to resume accepting passengers coming in from Red China. By uh, January 5th. Why are we waiting to January 5th? Why don't we do it right now, today? Let me think of it. They just had two airlines filled with Chinese passengers come into Milan, Italy. 
half of all those passengers on both those flights were tested COVID positive. Well, if, if half were COVID positive, if the other half were not and spent 10 hours with those people, they're probably COVID too. Common sense. Meantime, remember, ever since Emperor for Life Xi has uh, no, he's no longer doing the total quarantine of his people. There's 250 million people who have COVID now in Red China. That's one-sixth of their population. They're going to have a Lunar New Year coming up where they want to travel. You know, it's like it's like we travel for Christmas or we travel for Easter. John, this is crazy. And one of the things I talked about is they China is one of them, one of the countries that did not have a countrywide immunization program. Nothing. They had nothing. And now we're basically saying it's okay because the only way they'll get to travel is if they've tested negative before they get on their flight in Shanghai or Beijing or whatever port of uh, Red China they're flying from Red China to the United States. And you know what a lot of this has to do, John? The tourism. Before the lockdown and pandemic, the number one tourists to America were from Red China. And they would come in large groups. They would spend their money. They wanted to see all the places like uh, they want to go through Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Houston, Chicago, Washington, Boston, Philadelphia, and especially here in New York. And it spread like wildfire. And now it's going to happen all over again. They say, oh, but they'll be pre-tested. That didn't work the first time. And, John, it's not going to work this time. This is nuts. And you know who's behind this in addition to Biden? Who is our transportation secretary, Buttigieg, 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 Buttigieg? And he wants to run for president. Oh, over my dead he, body. He, he can't do a one-car funeral procession. <laughs> over my dead body. This is so nuts. From John Katzmatidi's interview in January of 2020 with Fauci, who said, don't worry, be happy. A month Later, a total lockdown of all flights from Red China. March of 2020, the entire country got locked down. And you know when we bought WABC? March 1, 2020. That's right. We had that uh, celebration in which, unfortunately, some of the people who were with us got COVID at that gathering. Up next, Dr. Mikolos, who can try to connect the dots for us. He used to be a, a, a doctor. Then he was a doctor and a scientist. Now he's a doctor, a scientist, and a historian. Who almost got into a punch-out with Congressman Peter King last night on the 5 o'clock roundtable discussion. Well, Peter had his Irish up. Oh, man, did he? I was ready to sort of call him into the ring. The Greek versus the Irishman. Except round Dr. one. Dr. Michalos is six foot seven. I know, but you know, you know, the congressman, uh, the congressman is one tough Irishman. He's not going to hit below the belt, is he? Hell yes, he would. <laughs> he hits me off. He always reminds people, I graduated Brooklyn Prep. Curtis didn't. That's always hitting me below the belt, John. And then he went to Notre Dame with my friend Jim Cooley. That's right. Chasing the leprechauns for the pot of gold. Yeah, I'd like to hit him with a shillelagh. But anyway, Dr. Mikolos up next. With John Katzmatidis, yours truly, as we take you to the 10 o'clock hour. Sit in friends in the morning. 77 WABC. Another Cousin Brucey song. I love that music. 
By the way, normally uh, in the past, Cousin Brucey has welcomed in the new year with the dropping of the ball at Times Square. Do we know if the Cuz is going to do that this year, John? I think it's too cold out there. Yeah. I'm going to be out there before it's time for me to come on the air, which is right after the uh, ball drops. I'm out there every year with the Guardian Angels because he can get pretty crazy. I'm sure it can. I mean, uh, usually 90% of those people are foreigners. Oh, They're not people that, yeah. Nobody from New York City, unless they work, you know, they have to work that night. Nobody's going to be there because you're in cattle cars for hours. You know, they push you in. And they, you can't, they square you out. Right. Yeah. And you better wear your depends because there's no way for there's you. There's no bathrooms. Nope. Nope. So you stand there for hours and people are blowing these horns in your, your, your ears and they're drunk and it's, it's Michigan. And, and now calling in, uh, we have Dr. Peter Michalos. We used to call him a doctor. Then we called him a doctor and a scientist. Now we're calling him a doctor, a scientist, and a historian. So I don't know what's next. And <laughs> and and also, I understand this morning you may be a coffee expert. And Dr. Peter Michalos, tell us about coffee. Well, I am going to tell you about coffee. But before, since Curtis mentioned it last night, uh, what I was talking about actually had to do with the Spanish flu, but I never got a chance to finish my sentence. What happened was that in 1918, the United States uh, invaded Russia, believe it or not, with 5,000 troops along with British and uh, French. And what they were trying to do was to save the Russian czar and save Russia from the communist, progressive, socialist Bolsheviks who ended up taking care of the country. But the interesting thing that has to do with flu and pandemics are they got caught by winter and they were in trouble and the 319th Regiment of the United States was supposed to go in and save them and basically stop the Bolsheviks and stop the communists. But they ended up getting Spanish flu and they got decimated. So that unit was not able to rescue them. And they were lucky to get out of there with only 334 Americans uh, killed and about another 300 wounded. So it has to do with uh, pandemics. But think about the world would have been different if the Americans were successful back in 1918 and not allowed the communists uh, progressive Bolsheviks to take over Russia, we would have never had a Soviet Union, and the world would have been a different place. So this is just it would have been, you know, that, that's the uh, the fork in the road, you know. Yeah, that was the fork in the road, and then the other thing I was just well, what did, what did King he, King. what did Peter King get upset about? <laughs> well, I, I, all I was trying to say was that the Russians have a history of waiting for the rivers to freeze and the ground to freeze, which they learned from the Mongols that they do better in winter fighting because their adversaries usually don't know how to fight as well in these winter conditions. And that I predict, and you can play it again in three to four weeks, that in the next 45 days, when the rivers freeze and the ground freezes, that's when you're going to see a major assault. By the Russians. That's well, just the based on history and uh, Curtis. I was just Curtis just played back my Dr. Fauci interview from January twenty fifth, twenty twenty. Were right. you able? And did I'm you hear it? Comment on that too. Yeah, I did hear it. Well, what happens is the re- the problem with these lockdowns is that yes, they slow down the transmission in countries like China, New Zealand, and all the other places that did super lockdowns. They also, their immune systems went into super hibernation, so they don't have any immunity. What's happened to us in the last four or five months is about 70% of people in the United States have been exposed to Omicron, and almost all of us have been exposed to COVID. 
So we're in a very different place now. So I can say that whatever happens now, it's very different because now we have antivirals. We have IV antibodies, and we have tons of immunity everywhere. If we did blood tests on New Yorkers, uh, especially in the last six months, you'd find that we have high COVID titers. So we're not it is a problem. Yes, we're going to see it, but we're not. I don't think we're going to see the ICU situation because I looked at the numbers for ICU beds around the country, and uh, they look at percentage taken by COVID patients, and it's only around 10%, which is nothing like where we were last time. So, yes, it's winter. We said we go indoors, dry air. The virus spreads greater distances in dry air and as we gather indoors, but it's not going to be as devastating because we have uh, Americans have a lot of antibodies now, and uh, we're in a different place. I worry about countries like uh, New Zealand. If a bunch of people with COVID went to New Zealand, where they've been in super lockdowns in Australia, they'd be in big trouble. So I think we're in a better place because of American ingenuity and scientists. And as we speak, our scientists are working on new antivirals, and they're even studying which strain, which genetic code, and which variant. What's interesting with China is they keep talking about 250 million cases, but they're not telling us which variant. Is this a new variant? Is it a new hybrid variant? And that's what we'd like to know. But going on to the coffee study, the coffee studies are very interesting. Things that we already knew that came out of Portugal, that coffee, they did MRI studies and looked at brain activity, and they showed that it's involved in improved concentration, improve motor control, alertness, attention, and every business knows it's good to have a coffee pot around because your workers are more productive. And uh, that was fascinating. And the cerebellum, which acts in motor control, it showed increased activity. So that's why when people drive and they say, I'm going to have a cup of coffee, and that alertness does help. The only problem is that if you do too much coffee, then it's also associated with stress and anxiety. So depending on your height and weight and how much coffee you drink, you have to find that perfect balance. The other fascinating thing about coffee is that asthmatics tend to love to have a cup of coffee, and they now know why, because there's a chemical in coffee called methylxanthines, and those are bronchodilators. They dilate the smooth muscles in our body, and they dilate the smooth muscles in our lungs, so you feel like you breathe better. If you ever had a cup of coffee sometimes and you have a cold or you have an asthma, problem and you have a good cup of coffee, you feel like you can breathe better. And there is a scientific reason because coffee contains those chemicals called methylxanthines that actually cause dilation of your bronchioles. And the last thing that Curtis commented on was the horoscope. And there actually was a scientific study done at Columbia University uh, a while ago, and he studied 1.67 million medical records. And they showed that people born in certain months had tended to have a greater number of uh, diseases, like people born in April, for example, had more heart problems. So that was uh, very interesting that depending on the month you're born, uh, people, you know, born in uh, late summer had more atrial fibrillation, more arrhythmias. They don't know why, but there is an association that based on the month that you were born, you have a greater number of diseases. So some people call this as... The the the, hor- the horoscope article, which is, is it the hor- uh, from, hor- from from where the stars are located, or what? <laughs> well, there is a believe it or not, there is a pattern, and I sent it to you, John, and share it with Curtis. It's fascinating, and also certain professions, like for example, for some reason, most surgeons are Scorpios, and nobody knows why, and what the association is, but that is the that is a real, uh, you know, it's basically documented. 
Just like uh, we found out that uh, when people were born around the time of peak solar flares, when there's a lot of radiation, they live on an average of five years less than the rest of the population, which is another fascinating thing that uh, we're still uh, learning more about. Now, so Doctor, there are, there is, doctor yes, on the matter of the coffee, because we've seen different reports, uh, uh, there was a time, oh, if you drink too much uh, coffee, you're going to get a heart attack or a stroke. Then there was a study, no, 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 drink more coffee, you'll live longer. Now, is that that's always caffeinated coffee, right? Because I have to assume that if it's uncaffeinated coffee, you know, we, we, we were introduced to that as kids, uh, Sanka, you know, some of our aunts and uncles say, oh, I can't deal with the caffeine, just give me the Sanka, that uh, that is specific to caf- caffeinated coffee because I can't imagine the same thing happens with, uh, decaffeinated coffee. Well, there's another problem. Caffeine is not the only ingredient in coffee, and the problem is the process of decaffeination and the chemicals used to bind the caffeine and get it out, that there are concerns about what those chemicals might be doing to people as well. So it's not just the caffeine. Just like I mentioned, the methylxanthines are found in coffee, which causes bronchodilation, which dilates your airway so you breathe better. So it's not just the caffeine. And the thing with heart attacks and strokes is if you have uh, narrower arteries and you drink caffeine, what does caffeine do? It makes your heart go faster. So it puts more strain on the heart. So it's a very delicate balance. And it depends. If you're a young person with no cardiac problems, uh, you have a cup of coffee, your heart rate is 60, it's going to go to 75. It's not going to hurt you. But if you're having a heart that's in heart failure or strain, then you have a very strong cup of coffee and your heart is going at 80 and suddenly it's going 95, that's a problem. So it, it is a delicate balance. We're really a big bag of chemistry and finding a delicate balance. And that's why we have lab work, to know where our chemistry is and just balance it all out. Now, so one, the, one, the trick one, is moderation. one final question, Dr. Mikolo. So as of January 5th, the United States will resume flights coming in from Red China, mainland China, as long as... They have a negative COVID test, anybody boarding uh, as a passenger. So when those airlines land at Newark and uh, JFK and we see, wow, it's a red Chinese airline with red Chinese passengers, we should have no concern about that? No, obviously there's a concern, and it's also Hong Kong and Macau that has that same uh, restriction. I would probably just add that they isolate for two days before they go out to the general public and, and have the test. So this way, if they test it two days before and then you give it like a two-day period, that would probably be a, a, a safer thing. But again, I, I, again, Curtis, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that thank God that we have a lot of immunity now because so many people in the New York area, you know, just look around all your friends and family, how many people have had it. When we had no antibodies and our immune systems were virgin, that's why we had the explosion of kids with flu, RSV, because all these masked up children who didn't go to school and their immune systems weren't getting training and they were just virgin. And suddenly we let the kids out and it's spreading like wildfire. It's starting to burn out again a little bit. But that's the problem with lockdowns. That's why Sweden, from the beginning, they said, hey, just go out there, live your life. And, you know, whoever lives, lives. That's their attitude. And uh, that's why now they have, like, almost uh, no problem with COVID because we got the herd immunity. Lockdowns initially work, so you don't have, you know, people. And, and the Chinese do not have the herd immunity. 
That's no, why they don't because of those severe lockdowns. They're 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 in an immune immune system that hasn't had any uh, exposure to anything. They haven't had flu. They haven't had viruses. Actually, the Chinese coming over here who tested negative, they are much more susceptible to getting very sick. What I would advise is that people coming from other countries should have travel insurance because they could overwhelm our hospitals suddenly because they're the ones who are at risk of getting sick more than we are right now. It's the reverse of what happened last time. Well, it appears that nobody's uh, at the helm making the decision. Our president is in St. Croix, Virgin Islands. Boudicchia dealing with Southwest Airlines, but we've been told on January 5th, expect the continuation of flights coming in from mainland China, as the doctor, a good doctor, said also from Macau and Hong Kong. Boy, Why do we just stop the flights? I, I, I don't understand this for the life of me. Don't understand this for Would the life Would everybody of me. call their congressmen and their senators and call the White House and tell them, stop the flights? By the way, up next, uh, we've got to ask you, John, you're uh, knowledgeable about a lot of different forms of business. But George Santos is finally giving us an idea of maybe how he made that money. That question you asked him, where'd you get to 700000 Seemed like he said he's selling gray products on the Internet. A lot of people don't understand what that is. A man who knows everything about business, John Katsimatidis, will deal with that, along with yours truly, Curtis Sliwa. As we continue on to the 10 o'clock hour, uh, we expect Sid to be back on Monday. So we'll be here the rest of the day today and tomorrow as live and local broadcasting continues, making WABC the number one news talk station in the nation. This is Sid and Friends in the Morning. From my friends. 77 WABC. I, I texted JP. Oh, boy. You started this off, John. It was Monday night and your roundtable discussion with your many contributors and guests and Lydia Serrani, and you had the exclusive first interview with George Santos, who began to dig himself a grave. In fact, I have the one question that's going to haunt him for the rest of his life. After everybody got through with their questions, Anthony Weiner, everybody else, you asked him the question that now the authorities are on his uh, tail about. Where'd you get the money? Last question. Um, the $700,000 you put into the election, was that your money? That is the money of that I paid myself through my company, the Volder Organization. That was it. John, and you notice how he hesitated, he got a bit flummoxed, and ever since you extracted that answer from him, because previously he gave no answers to any questions, he's been like a male yenta, he's done every interview, he's digging himself a deeper and deeper political grave, now he has an Nassau County uh, uh, district attorney who is probing uh, the financial aspect that you had mentioned, and apparently the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District 
And it really comes down to where did you get that money in which you self-financed your campaign with 700000 when you claimed you had only made five hundred. excuse me, $50,000. We may have an answer here, John. He says he took it from his company. Right. But now they said, uh, how did you make the money in your company? And he said, my business was I would take secondhand luxury goods on the down low, and I put them out on the Internet, and I would say, hey, are you looking to buy a plane? Are you looking for a boat? I would just put a feeler out there, and supposedly if it's a high-end uh, item, let's say $20 million for yachts, uh, I'd get a six-figure referral free fee after raking in uh, you know, some other expense money. And it brings me to what may possibly be somewhat truthful of what he's talking about, because we know if there is anything truthful about him is that he has roots in Brazil. That's where he got busted, remember, for passing uh, bad checks. That's where he ended up developing a criminal record uh, initially. But in my time in Brazil, uh, organizing Guardian Angels in Rio de Janeiro, whenever I would talk with retailers and they spoke English and Portuguese, they would say, oh, we deal in the market of what they call gray goods from Paraguay, nearby Paraguay, much smaller country than Brazil. And then I found out from them, yeah, people from Argentina, other countries, they're able to buy name brand products without the corporations knowing it in Paraguay, which they call gray goods. Can you explain that? Yes. Uh, uh, Let's take a company like Procter & Gamble. They have a different price for every region of the world. Uh, and uh, uh, I'll give you an example. When I used to run uh, Gristini's, Red Apple, Sloan's, uh, 20 years ago, I haven't run uh, supermarkets in over 20 years. Uh, I used to be able, we had our own warehouse in the Bronx, uh, Hunts Point Market, and we used to buy truckloads of Procter & Gamble bounty towels. 40 cents cheaper a unit than what Procter & Gamble would charge us for in the United States. Where did you buy them from? Toronto, Canada. And we had uh, the uh, Syrian uh, Jews from up there drive it down from Toronto, uh, down to New York to our warehouse. So the difference in price that I can give the Gristidis customer or the Red Apple customer was tremendous. We would be able to sell it for 99 cents for bounty towels versus the American bounty towels uh, were um, $1.69 at that time, $1.49, so 50 cents cheaper. Right, so uh, so the, the, the problem is created by the corporations themselves, and there are a few smart honchos that take advantage of it and buy the product cheaper in certain countries and then export it to the other countries where it's more expensive. So is this outside of the It's permission? not against the law, I don't think. Right, but it's it's without the permission of that corporation. Oh, absolutely. Right? And the, what the corporation does, they don't really they can't sue you really uh, because they don't want the publicity that they're selling it cheaper in Canada, God forbid. Uh and uh, uh so what they do is they 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 try to uh cut you out from the American product. See, so he's saying cameras, cars, yachts, watches, 
which fall under the category of what we call the great products. You're well, ta- don't forget, the difference in price in Canada, too, the Canadian dollar is 77 cents the last time I looked. So uh, you have, you're, set, you're spending an American dollar and you get a dollar twenty-two. Now I dealt with Procter and Gamble. It's the biggest corporation out there for products it's you buy. It's a very the, fine company. They have their own police department. Yes, they do. They have. Forget the FBI. I found the Procter and Gamble police department far more thorough than our own FBI. And bo- there's no political connections here. You don't have to worry about that. But in the area of coupons. Because remember, coupons were like a lifeline for supermarkets, retail, wholesale. And they would put out a lot of the coupons that used to be in the newspapers. You know, And they put a lot of people in jails back in the 80s right. for sending in too many coupons. Right. And it was one group of people in Detroit. Because you would see your redemption rate. They would say Philadelphia, we're getting like 6%. Uh, Baltimore, we're getting like 7%. Detroit. We're getting 28% redemption on the coupons. So they fly their police department into Detroit. They hit all the party stores. They call them party stores there, which are the equivalent of delis and bodegas. And they're owned by the Chaldeans, who are the Christian Iraqians. These are tough people. They had to survive in Iraq. So they would get the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News. They had two newspapers at that time, and Wednesdays were coupon day. So the women would have the scissors. They'd be cutting out the coupons. And then they'd throw them in dryers because they had to make make it appear as if they were used coupons. They'd be sitting on couches, jumping up and down on them to crinkle them up. And then they would bundle them up and bring it to the wholesaler. And then the wholesaler would bring them to Procter & Gamble for redemption. And then they took out a whole bunch of Chaldeans on the perp walk in chains and shackles. It, it happened in the 1980s a great deal. Uh, you used to buy in the Daily News. I don't know. Does it That's exist right. anymore? Oh, let me tell you, John, when I delivered it, I delivered 168 dailies, 182 Sundays. The coupon day, if you didn't get coupon the paper Coupon day, there was $50 worth of coupons, right. $60 worth of coupons, and you could buy the newspaper for a nickel or 10 cents. Right. But if you didn't get that paper there on time, the woman of the house was waiting there with the scissors in her hand. She was, like, ready to stab you with it. That was the most important well, newspaper what happened day. is uh, the grocers at that time would buy a 1,000 newspapers. So what's the cost? A 1,000 newspapers, 10 cents, that's $100. Right. And a 1,000 newspapers had $50,000 worth of coupons. I want to repeat the numbers. <laughs> $50,000 worth of coupons. So if, if a woman was there with, with the scissors right, and she cut a 1,000 papers and she had $50,000 worth of coupons, she would go to, uh, and she was for the Hadassah or whatever, a right. charity. She would go to a, to a local grocer and say, I've got $50,000 worth of coupons. Would you give us a contribution of $5,000? Yes. And the grocer and the grocer said yes, and the grocer got the, paid her five thousand dollars to the charity, took the tax deduction on the five thousand dollars, and then ended up with fifty thousand dollars worth of coupons plus handling charge. So a lot of people opened up stores just to be able to reach, send out any coupons. One Saturday night. John, I'm listening as I try to listen every Saturday night, 6 to 10, to Cousin Brucey. He takes phone calls. 
These are people who ask for, gee, cousin, could you play this particular tune? Uh, this is uh, this was uh, the tune that we, we had our wedding uh, dance to, and he plays tunes. So the woman calls up, Brucey, I'm the coupon lady. And he goes, oh, the coupon lady. And she goes, yeah, I would collect coupons for my charity, and I would uh, redeem them, and I was able to raise money for my... But let me tell you about Pathmark. Pathmark, they would never give me value. Right away, Cousin Bruce, he got all nervous. I don't want you demeaning any corporations out there. I felt like saying, Brucey, you know how many years Pathmark has been out of business? <laughs> but she t- she gave it away. The whole story, like you just said, John, and of all places, on the Cousin Brucey show... Saturday nights from 6 to 10, and then she finally got her request. But Cousin Brucey, that's why he was such a great uh, advertiser for anybody that wanted product, was always protecting uh, the uh, the brand. And in this case, the brand was Pathmark, which I don't think he realized as he was getting into the conversation was out of business. Now, you remember how big Pathmark was at one time. Uh, Pathmark, my friend Jack Futterman ran it. Yeah. When Jack Futterman ran Pathmark, Pathmark had an EBITDA, that's a terminology of how much money they make, earnings before interest, depreciation, and taxes, of $300 million. Without Jack Futterman, Pathmark went bankrupt. Yeah, and I remember the thing that attracted so many shoppers to Pathmark, because it was very competitive then as it is now. You had wall bombs, you had the Great Atlantic Pacific and Tea Company, you had other supermarket outlets, your outlet, you had Red Apple, Gristides, you had D'Agostino back then, Sloan's, all these folks competing in a business that basically was nickel and dime business and pennies. And they had the generic aisle. Remember the one aisle in Pathmark in which everything was reduced. It was all white label. You had the white label on Pathmark and you had the print and that was it. And I'm sure... You had a lot of ladies who would come up for the dented cans. You must say, at one time, they let you sell the dented cans. I had a great story to tell you. Dented cans, yes, absolutely. Uh, they wanted to buy the dented cans. Yeah. And it was against the law to sell them. Right. But what do you do? That's right. But they used to, we used to have in the AMP, you would have the shopping carts up front with the dented cans. A lot of the poor and impoverished people would come in, they'd look at the Denny cans, and they'd buy up the Denny cans. I didn't see anything wrong with that, but you're right. The Department of Health would come in, you can't sell Denny cans, you can't sell open packages, none of that. I'm like, I... And you can't sell outdated stuff, and usually uh, outdated stuff is good for at least minimum six months after the expiration date. Mm. Uh, I mean, dairy products, no, maybe a a week to 10 days after the expiration date. But um, you, you're not allowed to sell outdated products, and you're not allowed to sell uh, uh, outdated uh, dairy. And uh, milk, um, milk only had a three-day uh, uh, shelf life in those days uh, when me and you used to stock the, the shelves. That's right. And not only that, but if you had a cup of coffee and you put milk in and the milk started to curdle, you knew right away. It didn't matter what the expiration date said on that milk. It's no good. It's curdling. <laughs> I said, I, I want a cup of coffee. <laughs> oh, man. It's amazing the competition that you had when you were in the business against these giants. I mean, Great Atlantic Pacific Tea Company out in Garden City, they had warehouses as far as the eye could see. Pathmark. 
wall bombs. I remember my Aunt Mary told me the story, John, of uh, Mrs. Wallbaum. She was a widow from Crown. I knew her well. Right. She had uh, an egg and dairy store to start with in Crown Heights. And imagine back then, it was very difficult for a woman on her own. She created this empire. And Jewish people felt that they had a shop at Wallbaum's. Like you were being Jew-ish, as George Santos would say, if you didn't shop at Wallbaum's. What was she like as a competitor, John? Uh, they, they ran a great operation. They were very demanding that the stores look great. Uh, it was a great Long Island operation. And I was having breakfast uh, in Florida with Ira Warbaum. Um, oh, my God. It must have been 1986, 87. I don't remember. And he was, you know, he's been in the business like all his life. And he said, and he couldn't take it anymore. Uh, they were stealing it from the warehouse and he couldn't find the, the people stealing, et cetera, et cetera. And he made the decision at that breakfast, you ready? To sell the company to A&P. Yep, I remember. And A&P bought the company over a two-week period. Nobody knew what was happening. I was there at breakfast when he made that decision. And they sold the company and A&P eventually went bankrupt. I mean... Uh, the war bombs ran a good company. They were having difficulties, but they ran a great company. You know why people would go to the Great Atlantic and Pacific Company, AMP, where I was the assistant manager and the key You know what AMP stands I, for? Uh, give me that to me. You don't know. My God. The Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company. Oh, yes. All right. But they came for the 8 o'clock coffee. Oh, it was great coffee. Remember, you could grind it yourself. You could smell the coffee, and and you re- that was real coffee. They yes, eight o'clock coffee was great coffee. You grind it yourself, put it in the me. bag. They sued me. They did. I, you know, I'm a creator. I create things. Yes, I created six o'clock coffee. Stronger what, coffee what, for what, the people. What? I want a, a stronger cup of coffee at <laughs> six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'll tell you more about stuff I created. Oh wow, wow. Gee whiz, um, no, no wonder why. I mean, who's going to get up 8 o'clock in the morning, a banker? <laughs> I mean, 6 o'clock in the morning, it's, it's working, people. Yeah, well, wait a second. You're right, because the former mayor, de Blasio, didn't wake up until about 10, 10. o'clock in the morning. You know, we ought to call uh, Bill de Blasio have him on. We should. He just, remember, he was just sued by a woman who did a slip and fall in front of his house. She, oh, my God. She got injured. The she, truth is... He's a very nice guy. Yeah, no, no he's doubt. a very nice guy, and he knows baseball. Yeah. yeah, he knows baseball. Believe it or not, he is an aficionado. But anyway, we continue on at the ten o'clock hour. It's Sid Rosenberg back on Monday. It's John Katz and Matitas. He wears three hats. He's a producer. He's a talk show host. He's the owner, and it's yours truly, Curtis Lee. And I'm a booker. I book. That's right, booker, booker, celebrity booker. I might add, right here at WABC. Friends in the morning, 77 WABC. We got the supermarket mogul here, John Katsimatidis. And I was uh, just saying to John during the break, 
It's my first beer that I ever drank was Bohack beer, the cheapest beer. I mean, I, I'm surprised my stomach lining was in place. We had Pabst. That's right, Pabst. And we used to sell a six-pack of Pabst. Ready? A six-pack, 99 cents. How is that possible in these days? Well, now the hipsters and millennials, oh, Pabst Blue Ribbon, $6 a bottle. A bottle. Just be, just for Pabst. It's all marketing. Completely. Completely. Now, in, in all these, because you, you had extreme battles. Apparently, you were telling us that the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, with their army of lawyers, sued you because you had your own brand of Six coffee. Six o'clock coffee. <laughs> for stronger coffee for the people that work for a living and had to get up early. Wow. <laughs> and then and I almost got sued by Great Bear Water. Wait, wait. Great Bear Water? Yeah. Great Bear. And uh, we used to have, I created it. I was a creator. I created products. I created polar bear water. Polar bear water. Absolutely. What's the, the great difference? bear water was uh, the the bear on the on the label was uh, brown. On the polar bear water, the polar bear was white. And did they come after you and try to sue you for that? They they threatened, and then I got threatened threatened by Trader Joe's. Oh, Trader Joe! This is where the millennials and hipsters—they love Trader Joe's. I opened Joe's. up a store. They had a, a Trader Joe's stores on, on 14th Street. I opened up a store about two blocks away called Trader John's. Trader John's, and we lost that case. Wait, wait, wait! I, I, I couldn't. We lost the case. We had to close the store. You know what? You should have called it because you could. I'm, I'm my name is John. No, you and should, I'm a trader. You should have called it Trader Julio's, catering to the Hispanic Latino community. I wish you were around that day. You would have taught me. You were young. <laughs> and you could have gotten your friend there from Goya Foods to well, back there was you a up. Federal judge. Yeah, that used to be a lawyer. For one of the, her clients that I beat the crap out of, and she lost the case. Mm. So she got even when I lost that case. And then, remember, the first one to warn us about the shoplifting and the boosting uh, in stores, even before the lockdown and pandemic of March of 2020, when it, people just went wild with looting and boosting and shoplifting, John Katzmatidis said, they want the Hagen Dazs. If there's one thing they come in for, it's the Hagen Dazs. And I think you even said to me you were willing to put an armed guard at the freezer cabinet because they would come in and all they'd want to do is loot and shoplift your Hagen Dazs. Well, we made worldwide news. I could, I could, you know, they were stealing the Hagen Dazs from the from the stores. Taking it because it's liquid, it's frozen assets. Sure. So they would take it to the nearest bodega within three blocks <laughs> so it won't melt. <laughs> sell it to the bodega because Hagen Dazs would not sell directly to the bodega. Wow. And 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 that's how they recovered their money. So we're selling Hagen Dazs for, for like $6. They would sell it to the bodega. They'll steal it from us. Right. Go down the block, sell it to the bodega for $2. Wow. <laughs> Well, we put out a $5,000 reward. 
uh, in the New York Post, and it made worldwide news. Every every newspaper published it. I remember that. I remember Carolyn, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney was in Africa, and she picks up the newspaper, and it's in the African papers. (laughs) And she calls me in New York and says, your your story is in Africa. Well, we caught that guy. And, uh, you know, for $5,000 10 years ago, his own grandmother turned him in. Hmm. And uh, we caught that guy, and uh, uh, we solved the problem for a while. Now, it wouldn't matter. They're taking haagen They're taking uh, Ike and Jerry's or whatever the hell the name of that brand is. <laughs> they're taking everything they can get their mitts on. Ernie, Ernie uh, Nastas just texted me. He says, you could have called it uh, Trader Yanni. Yanni is Greek, the <laughs> Greek right. for... Uh... Trader Yanni. Oh, Trader Juan for Spanish. Wow, so you are basically waiting in the wait. Somebody would set up a product, and then you would create your own adaptation. No, no, I, I, if I had a good selling product. Right. And great beer water was a great selling oh, water. Yeah. We would sell it for $1.49. Mm. We would make more money selling polar bear water at 99 cents than we did on polar bear water at $1.49, and the customer was getting a better deal. Uh-huh. And, and, what- that's, and that's what it was all about, the customer getting a better deal and, 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 and me marketing it because it's all in marketing. Now, what would you say was the first venture you had, John, when you were making your bones in a very tough business? Groceries, supermarket, the margins are so, so pennies, nickels, dimes. Your first venture out where you said, wow, this, this is a winner. This, this concept of mine, this, this particular product that I put out. I don't understand the question. What kind of product? You mean, in mean the that, your own, uh, uh original own product? product? Yes. Well, look, I, I was a copycat. Why? Uh, when we were getting uh, bounty towels from from uh, Toronto, bounty was a great product. When we were getting Charmin from Toronto, Charmin was a great product. And uh, you take a great product and make a similar product. So that way you depend on, uh, oh, I'll give you another one. When I was 17 years old working the streets, and I used to work for uh, my cousin Tony and on the, the Red Apple, 137th Street and Broadway. Mm. Mm. So, you know, I would, you know, you heard of Tiffany. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cologne, Cartier Cologne. Sure. Oh, my God. What was the name of the? I had a very similar cologne. They were selling for $20, $25 in those days. I was selling it for $5. I used to buy it for $2, sell it for $5. Wow. So it wasn't uh I was always a, I was always a trader. I would buy something, sell something. And it's all about And know, where did that come from because your your father was not a merchant? I don't know where that came from. Hmm. Um but uh I I I well in those days uh, uh, I call it being a hustler. Yeah, but we see. You know, I was going to college. I needed gas money. I, all, I worked uh, all over the world because I've traveled the world starting Guardian Angels. There's four groups that I always run into in the strangest places, and I can't find any more of them Lebanese, Chinese, Jews, and Greeks. 
They're like the merchants of the world. And I'll say to them, are there any other Greeks here? Yeah, a small colony of Greeks. Uh, what, what is it that brought you over? We were a merchant class. Jews, a merchant class. Lebanese, a merchant class. Chinese, a merchant class. And that's why you find them all over the world. Because if not for them, they wouldn't have been able to move product in those countries. Many of them in third world countries. They were, don't forget, uh, the Far East, uh, the Near East, the Far East, the, the Arab countries, Lebanon, you're, like you said, all traders. You know, my mother was born in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. So I'm sure there were a lot of traders up there. Now, have uh, you been to Lagos in Nigeria? Because I know you, uh, you they, they, they made you Grand Marshal of the annual Nigerian uh, By accident. Right. <laughs> but have you ever been to Lagos? I've Niger- never been to Nigeria. All the restaurants and bars are owned by Lebanese. Wow. You would say, how did they end up getting in Lagos, which is like 10 million people, lots of uh, Africans, they speak English, the Queen's English. And they ended up getting control of the bars and restaurants. That's the way the Lebanese are. It's like they're a merchant class. Anyway, coming up, another doctor. Boy, today's the doctor's hour. Which doctor were we going to have coming up, John? Uh, Dr. Uh, Mark Siegel, one smart guy. And uh, uh, he had a, you know, and he doesn't only talk about, uh, uh, like Dr. Michalos, he doesn't only talk about medical. He talks about a lot of things. Well, I was talking with him at the Fox News Channel the other night before I went on with Jesse Waters, and uh, he told me he was from Bayside. He's a Bayside kid. You know who else is from Bayside? Who? George Costanza. You know who else was from Bayside, supposedly? George Santos. If he is even George Santos. Anyway, uh, so much to talk about. You don't want to go anywhere. And then at 10 o'clock, the live and local programming continues. Brian Kilmeade is on vacation, so John decided, no, no, we're not taking a substitute. Not ready for prime time. It's our own Lydia Serrani from 10 to 12, just like she was yesterday. And then I come back at you at 12.15 to 1. So it's continuous live and local programming. Other stations, they talk about best of, worst of, nah, nah, nah. It's live and local here. Live, live, 24 hours a day. Weekend, if you're lonely, we're around 3 o'clock in the morning. If you can't sleep, listen to us. Either listen to Curtis or listen to Morano. Justin Ellick here with your bottom of the hour sports update. Again, thanks to Pete Morgan and Peerless Boilers, Pavilion Tankless Water Heaters. Go to PeerlessBoilers.com, PavilionTankless.com for a dealer near you. They are indeed America's best built boilers. We begin here on the hardwood. The Nets, they beat the Hawks in Atlanta by a score of 108 to 107. Kyrie Irving caught fire late with 15 of his 28 points coming in the fourth quarter, while Kevin Durant was his usual self with 26 points for the night, including this pull-up jumper in crunch time that would ultimately be the game winner for Brooklyn. Collins takes on the challenge of Kevin Durant. 70 seconds left in a tie game. KD pulls. Hits again. That's not fair. 26 for KD. That call courtesy of Bally Sports Southeast. The win for the Nets marks their 10th straight in what's been a dominant stretch of victories. The winning streak is the longest in the NBA this season and the Nets' longest since they took 10 in a row in the 2005-2006 season. They'll go for 11 in a row come Saturday night in Charlotte against the Hornets. As for the Knickerbockers, they'll be in San Antonio tonight to take on the Spurs. That tip-off is set for 8 p.m. Eastern time. Over on the ice, the Devils suffer a home loss to the Boston Bruins. 3-1 to is your final score. Patrice Bergeron broke a 1-1 
one tie with just under five minutes remaining in regulation, while Nico Heischer was the lone goal scorer for the Devs. The Devils have dropped seven of eight and are six, nine, and two since their 13-game winning streak early on in the year. Up next for the Devs is a trip to Pittsburgh tomorrow night to face off with the Penguins. Looking ahead to hockey action tonight, the Rangers will be out in Tampa to take on the Lightning at 7 p.m., while the Islanders will get started about a half an hour later at 7.30 when they welcome in the Columbus Blue Jackets. And, of course, Thursday night football tonight kicks off Week 17 of the NFL season out in Tennessee as the 11-4 and Cowboys are set to pay the 7-8 and Titans a visit for an 8.15 p.m. Eastern time kickoff. The Cowboys go in as 12.5-point favorites. Here with your bottom of the hour's Thanks to Pete Morgan and Peerless Boilers, I'm Justin Alec on 77 WABC. This is Sit and Friends in the Morning. Entertaining and informative. Oh, you're my best friend. 77 WABC. I'd like uh, to know from Dr. Mark Siegel how it is that Keith Richards is still alive. That cadaver in formaldehyde with that spike right in his arm. He shot up every conceivable drug in the world to remain active in the Rolling Stones. Well, we have him on the line from Bayside, Queens, John. I saw him the other night at the Fox News Channel, Dr. Mark Siegel. Thanks for coming on board again, Doc. Oh, it's great to be on. By the way, I don't know the answer to that. I was going to ask the same thing about Mick Jagger, but I'll tell you what I do know. I know that since John is filling in for Sid, that he's been lifting weights. I saw him actually putting oil on his upper torso. I mean, I'm I'm a little worried about John, what he's doing here. He's going to tanning parlors. I mean, he, you're going to see John in Hollywood in the gangster movies while he's filling in for Sid. <laughs> or maybe owning a movie studio but I don't think as an actor. Listen, I, I think it's about time we buy a movie studio. <laughs> Look, all well, the I'm, great I'm, all the great movie studios that started were Jewish guys from the Lower East Side. That's how Hollywood got started. You're absolutely right. Yeah, well, I I think that well, that would be a that, wonderful idea, Doctor Siegel. What studio. did you want when you were growing up? What did you want to be when you grew up? A writer, always a writer. When I was ten years old. I won the Benjamin Franklin uh, essay writing contest. I was number three in the state of New York. And you ask who was number one and two. I don't know whatever ended up happening to them. But I won Benjamin Franklin silver dollars. I still save them to this day. They're worth it a little bit more than they were back then. I wrote about the the, uh, frugality of Benjamin Franklin and the diligence. And he was a hero of mine. You know, people tried to get me to collect, to be a collector of paintings. You know, when people think you have checks appeal, that they try to sell your paintings. And I mean, I looked at some of these paintings. I couldn't believe the value, and I don't believe in the value. So you know what I ended up collecting? I ended up collecting $10,000 bills. I bought a $10,000 bills, and uh, it was cost me $17,000. Now, why would you buy a $10,000 bill for $17,000? Well, they're out of circulation. It's a real collector's piece. Uh, and they haven't made them in 30, 40, 50 years. And you know what they're worth now? If you go to eBay, 
and ask for a ten thousand dollar bill. There's not that many left. Uh, it's a hundred fifty thousand. Wow. You see, no, John. But I knew what my downside was. My downside was ten thousand. <laughs> But here's the thing. This also explains why you bought oil companies and Gristides, because you understood people need energy. They need food. No matter what happens. And we're in the real estate business. They, they need someplace to live. <laughs> yeah, they, they need staples. They don't They don't need uh, cryptocurrency. They need staples. Well, I, I've been on Fox like you have all for the last uh, year or so. And it's scary that I've been right all along. Because I am in the real estate business, I am in the oil business, and I am in the food business. So I could track exactly what the heck is going on. Well, you've been very smart about what this administration has been doing to spend money they don't have and to pretend that they can fix things that they actually broke. So that's, you know, they should put give you, they should make you president, I think. Yeah, but I wasn't born here. <laughs> you, you think they can where, – where did that other guy – We've gotten around that before. We've gotten around that before. Yeah, and Schwarzenegger, they wanted him to be president. Now they're talking yeah. Elon Musk, president. You can't. Not if you're foreign-born. You can't. In fact, remember Ted Cruz, they said, you were born in Canada. You can't be president. John McCain, you were born in the Isthmus of Panama. You can't be president. But now – well, You remember you – remember- you remember Donald Trump saying that Obama was born in Africa. You, you do remember that, right? <laughs> Kenya, Indonesia. Yeah, well, he was. He knocked himself out looking for the birth certificate. But speaking of certification, uh, it bothered John to no end, and it bothered me that we were told that two planes uh, departed Shanghai with uh, Chinese mainland uh, passengers and landed in Milan. And in both flights, half the Chinese passengers were COVID positive. And our government has said they are resuming flights into the United States from mainland China as of January 5th. With the uh, the only addendum on that is, is that you had to have passed a COVID test. You had to be uh, COVID negative. And I'm saying to myself, slowly we turn step by step. Are we going back to January of 2020? Well, I'm glad you teed me up on this one. Now, I've written books on fear, and I'm always saying I'm not afraid. You shouldn't be afraid. In this case, I'd say I'm afraid because I think we we have to worry about this. I remember in early February 2020, a very dear friend of mine uh, showed me some Internet photos uh, of pe- and videos of people lying in the streets in, in China. And I said, ah, that, those are gimmick photos. But then I went to Nebraska to, to our quarantine center, and I interviewed people about the 15 people that came in off the Diamond Princess, and they were worried about this virus when they first saw it, and they got me worried. Now, flash forward, it's going to be early 2023, and we don't know what's going on in China, and we never will know what's going on in China. And I don't know if this is a new variant that they're not announcing or they're hiding. I don't know if it's because they shut down the whole society. Now they're suddenly opening it up. Nobody can understand that. They didn't, the dogma of shutting it down, COVID zero made zero sense. But now what's this strategy of suddenly opening it up all of a sudden? Now everything's opened up and the thing is spreading like wildfire. Nobody vaccinated, elderly dying, younger people sick going into the hospital. And here's to your point. And yet we're flying planes into the United States. I mean, I actually applaud the CDC's policy saying you have to be tested. 
but the problem is your test could be negative yesterday or today and positive tomorrow. Uh, I, I applaud that they're looking for secondary countries because that was the one thing the Trump ban didn't get uh, in early 20, 2020, which was people fly from China to Italy and then into the United States, and the airlines do not release that information. I'm wondering, though, how Homeland Security is going to deal with it now. Are they really going to be able to get that information? But finally, and this is the most important thing, I say a travel ban. What is this? What is this tiptoeing around the problem? Well, I, we all agree. Right? We all agree. Yeah, Doctor Mark Siegel, I want to take you back. It was early January, twenty twenty. John Katzmatidis was interviewing Doctor Fauci. It made worldwide news. Listen to what Doctor Fauci told all of us throughout the world in January of twenty twenty, exclusively to John Katzmatidis. What can you tell the American people uh, about what's going on? Should they be scared? Uh, I don't think so. The American people should not be worried or frightened by this. It's a very, very low risk to the United States. It isn't something that the American public needs to worry about or be frightened about because we have ways of preparing, of screening, of people coming in, and we have ways of responding like we did with this one case in Seattle, Washington, who had traveled to China and brought back the infection Dr. Mark Siegel, he couldn't have been more hopelessly wrong. Within a month, the travel ban by March of 2020, a complete and total lockdown of the country. That's a shocking, shocking uh, interview there, right there. And, and January I had, uh, 25th, 2020. Unbelievable. unbelievable. And, the, of course, the, the most erroneous thing of all, perhaps, other than not being afraid of that virus, which maybe he didn't know enough about it at the time, was that somehow we were going to test and isolate people. Those tests, the first 100 test kits, 97, were faulty. We didn't have the ability to identify a virus and rapidly test for it and isolate people. We didn't have that ability, and that was a huge, huge, huge mistake. And and uh, the other point I want to make at the beginning of the pandemic, and this I fault Dr. Fauci for more, it, because this he could have known about. I, t- I interviewed him and talked to him about lockdowns, and I said, I think lockdown strategies don't work. And I gave a lot of historical examples because of the fact that people get afraid. They they don't take precautions. They break the lockdowns. And also that this was going to be a highly contagious virus that you can't lock down. And he agreed with me. But then they instituted famously or infamously the lockdowns and then extended them and extended them, causing great harm, especially school closures. So Let me me ask you, Doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I'm just – I just have some common sense. If there's a hundred people on the if there's a hundred people on the airplane coming in from China, and fifty of them have COVID, and the other ones have flew f- together for twelve hours, what are the chances that the people that don't have COVID yet will get COVID? It's at least, it's less than you think it is, by the way, and I'll explain that. But it's at least fifty percent. It's a tin can, isn't it? Yes. And it's not. It's not when they're in the air that's the problem. It's when you're on the runway that your air is not circulating and your HEPA filters are not working. And HEPA filters work to pretty well. They filter out viruses pretty well. But when you're on the runway, forget it. And when you're getting in and out of the plane, forget it. And the person coughing on you mid-flight, forget it. Chances are very, very high. The only thing protecting you at that point is something nobody's talked about, which is some people are actually genetically protected. Some people are protected because of prior exposures and just are not going to get this. But, but at least 50% will on that plane if 50% of the passengers already have it. 
Now, Doc, it's ridiculous. Doc, uh, Dr. Mark Siegel, we're getting hit with the three. I call it the Trinity. Uh, you have RSV, you have COVID-19, the resumption, and you have the flu. How do you know the difference between all three? And then what do you do once you know? Yeah, I can tell the difference because I wrote books on flu and books on COVID. Haven't written a book on RSV, so I had to study that one. But basically, RSV, your nose is clogged, a lot of upper respiratory symptoms. You're blowing your nose like mad, and, and you got a scratchy throat. Flu hits you like a ton of bricks usually, where you're walking along one minute, the next minute you're laid out, you're very fatigued, you got muscle aches, you got body aches. You don't have so much of that upper respiratory congestion. You have a little bit, not a lot. You're not coughing your head off with the flu unless it's a secondary infection. And COVID actually is all of the above. So COVID, you have fever, you have you have cough, and you have uh, muscle aches. So COVID's all of the above. So, I, so COVID's the hardest one for me to differentiate. So have people test. If you get the rapid test and it's negative two or three days, I'm, more, I'm thinking more flu. So you've you got to get a doctor in the mix on this. You can't diagnose yourself because if you have flu, I'm going to want to give you Tamiflu. Thank, thank God that they finally released that from the stockpile. I wish they would release a little Tylenol or, or, uh, or Advil, but I found out they don't have that in the stockpile. What were they stockpiling, by the way, with the CARES Act? You know, they had that Coronavirus Act, $2.2 trillion, and didn't bother putting a, a, a single Tylenol in the stockpile. Maybe they were stockpiling. So, so somebody needs to sell this. One of the drug companies made a big drug company contribution uh, to the uh, one of the parties, and they needed to buy some Tylenols before the end of the year when they needed to make a sales. <laughs> I, you know, you, know, you, you ever see a, a salesman, uh, the, the chief sales manager? Oh, my God, it's December 20th. I'm below my quota. Where, where can we get, sell some uh, Tylenol or wherever? St. Joseph yeah. baby aspirin <laughs> to the government. They'll buy it. But anyway, Mark Siegel, Dr. Mark Siegel, appreciate it. If you didn't know before, I let you know. He's Bayside's uh, finest, born and raised in Bayside, Queens. And you see him on Fox News Channel, a regular guest on the 5 o'clock roundtable discussion with John Katsimatidis and here in the mornings with Sid Rosenberg and friends. Up next, we got to talk about the guy who supposedly lived in uh, Whitestone or Bayside, George Santos, now the focus of an espionage investigation, thinking that maybe he was an agent for Putin. Oh, my God. What else is there? Anything's a possibility with this guy. Are we sure his name is even George Santos? <laughs> 